Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. The night is young, and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and remember, this is wide screen podcasting. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. So, this is going to be a strange episode today, folks. During the first lockdown in the summer of 2020, me and Her Majesty Kit O'Toole got together to do an episode on the movie Give My Regards to Broad Street. Of course, all of you listening to this show will likely know who she is already. She's the co-host of Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles podcast, as well as having made appearances all over the podcasting scene. She's also an author whose works include The Songs We Were Singing, Guided Tours Through the Lesser Known Songs of the Beatles, which is a book title right after my heart. And I really must reinforce how much I was looking forward to doing this episode. Not only because Kit is really knowledgeable, but because she's one of the kindest, most giving podcast guests I've ever heard. She's a real laugh, and I knew we were going to have a blast recording this. She was also going to be the first woman I ever had on the show at that point, which was cool. And I also knew she had a whole lot of strong opinions about the movie in question. The recording itself went swimmingly. I'd like to think she had a blast too. I'd like to think she remembers that time as well. But then why didn't the episode come out? Again, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the pod at some point, but at that time on that day, my Skype recorder technology had failed, and this was before I had adopted Zoom here on the show, and so we had to settle on Kit recording the conversation, the audio, on her end. This was fine, except for the fact that whatever system Kit was using was only able to record one audio channel, which normally would be fine. You know, I've edited similar episodes before, it's clunkier and it means you can't edit out instances of people talking over each other, for example. But the kicker, for me at least, was the wind and the background audio. Yes, I'm sure it was lovely for Kit to sit outside on a bright-ass day doing a podcast with me. However, the audio just... it wasn't usable. You know, you can hear the wind, especially when I'm talking, and it's not like I could just edit out Kit's audio whilst I was speaking, you know, it's not what I wanted, and so it was instantly shelved, which is a shame. And there were subsequent attempts to revive this project, like McCartney and Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, but again, with all the audio errors and maladies that I could still hear, it still did not meet the regular Paul or Nothing standard, whatever that is, and remained on the shelf. Then, Months pass, I get this new computer, and whilst transferring over some files, I find this raw audio. And at that point, the Patreon was finally up and off its arse, and so I decided to upload this lost episode as it would be the perfect kind of bonus material for the patrons. And for a couple of months, this episode has indeed sat dormant, only heard by a select privileged paying few, aka the patrons. However, subsequently... After a poll on the Patreon, it was decided 
by all these wonderful folk who give me money every month that it was good enough for all of you to hear now. So make sure you thank them, maybe even thank them in the comments of the Patreon page by, you know, subscribing to it. But again, before the plugs, I've got to say, I don't think that this is going to be the official Broad Street episode. I don't think this is going to be the official article. And I may still very well re-record this with Kit herself in the future for the sake of posterity and my own perfectionism. Who knows? Maybe it'll be interesting to see how we do the second time around, as, you know, this isn't going to be the first time I've re-attempted to record the same podcast with the same script, albeit never with a year-plus gap in between recordings. To further make this point, there will be no briefing or introduction segment at the start of this episode explaining all the need-to-know cliff notes concerning the film version of Give My Regards to Broad Street. We will, again, shine our ever-loving living light on this topic, and when we do, I promise I'll dish out all the details. But yeah, this really is going to be something a little bit different today, folks, and I hope you all enjoy it for what it is as my kindly paying patrons certainly decided unanimously that not only was it fit for release, but it was good enough for consumption as is, with no further edits or attempts to cut out my awful stutter. This hasn't been edited past around the first 15-minute mark, which, as I say, is the point where I did try to salvage the episode originally, but besides that, this is going to be the most uncut, raw, get-back-esque, wildlife-esque, unplugged, official bootleg-style episode of Paul or Nothing that you're ever going to get, folks. Even I haven't listened to the audio this time around, and I will apologise now, not only for the audio quality, but for any jokes that are bad, any jokes in poor taste, and for any time I rudely interrupt the Majesty herself, Kit O'Toole. But before we can do any of that, we must first settle on the matter of the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news today, everyone? Well, first of all, we've had some new Paul McCartney merch drop. Yes, on the 1st of May 2021, with no official press release or even a post on his own website to announce it, we have been gifted with these limited edition three-imagined goodie boxes, rather reminiscent of the McCartney 3 coloured box sets. And I say three-imagined, because on McCartney's own website, it's listed as McCartney 3 Imagined box sets, which is just mental. But yeah, without getting too bogged down in this title yet again, let me first describe the contents. We have a black short sleeve t-shirt, both a white and black long sleeve top, each with unique designs, a McCartney 3 Imagined notebook and pencil set, custom multicolor McCartney 3 Imagined dice sets and a tin, four dice Polaroid prints, and an online store exclusive mini jacket CD edition of Three Imagined. Now, whilst I am a little miffed that I am having to pay for the dice that I kind of wish I'd gotten for free as a promotion, I'm still going to say that this is quite the haul, and one that is admittedly perfect for doting mega fans with more cash than sense. Like, there really isn't anything all that great of substance here, but it does feel like it's filling a gap. You know how... A lot of people were kind of expecting that fabled casino edition of McCartney 3 with dice and stuff like that. A lot of this stuff feels like, you know, the content that would have been in that box set had it existed. That being said, though, the fact that all of this stuff isn't trapped behind a price wall of 500 plus pounds or 700 plus dollars is certainly a step in the right direction for Macca's current marketing team. 
Like, yeah, we didn't need this any more than we needed a dozen or so pressings of McCartney 3 or 3 Imagined, but I am glad that the average Joe and Jane can now get their hands on this stuff without breaking the bank. Not only that, but if you don't like the clothing or the extra bonus goodies, then you can buy them separately. Again, much better for everyone involved. Of course, it's all still too expensive, and the fact that it's £85 for the entire merch set should be enough to get a large majority of the fanbase worked up as per the normal, and in principle, yes, I kind of agree that's probably about $20 too much, but when you think about the merch Paul charges when he's at a venue on tour, then you can see how some of this stuff in this bundle is quite the steal, and... For the sake of true transparency, I do have to be honest and say, no, I can't go on a huge socialist rant about this one, mostly because my kind and loyal patrons out there have indeed paid for this one for me. Yes, folks, thanks to my loyal fan base and wonderful listeners and even more wonderful patrons, not only have I been able to buy a gold exclusive copy of McCartney 3, I've been able to get RAM on the half speed edition, and now this £85 merch set. I've been saving the Patreon funds for a while now, and it's just great to have such a period of gluttonous expenditure. Like, you know, this really is you know, consumerism at its peak. And if it was my money, I probably wouldn't be doing a lot of this stuff. But, you know, I like to have stuff to review for the show. And if I'm not putting it into a new mic, getting guests on the show or paying, you know, the hosting fees, then hell yeah, I am going to get this set purely under the guise of reviewing it for all you out there. Hey, maybe I can even get it written off on my tax as well. Oh, speaking of free dice... Now that, you know, all of you wonderful patrons out there have indeed got me the Ram Half Speed album and the £85 merch set from McCartney's site specifically, do you think I will finally qualify to receive the next lot of free promotional merch the next time Paul releases something? Let's hope so, eh? Right, on to some other news. Uh, at the time of recording, Dominic Fike is set to perform his version of The Kiss of Venus from Three Imagined on The Late Late Show with James Corden in only a few hours. So if you are listening to this episode on day of release, be sure to check out Dominic's performance live tonight. I'd love to hear your thoughts and I'll let you know next time in the next news segment. And finally, a new director's cut of the iconic performance of While My Guitar Gently Weeps at the 2004 posthumous induction of George Harrison has been released. You know the video, I'm sure, folks. It's the one featuring Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, Steve Winwood, Danny Harrison, and finally Prince doing the showstopper guitar solo at the end. In this new cut, we basically just get more footage of Prince doing that as the broadcast version was a little more democratic with its cuts and here by the end it is just a Prince music video and it's pretty glorious go check it out I'll pop a link down below and that's it for the news folks so let's crack on with the plugs to get in contact with the show email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com I always love reading out your Paul McCartney stories here on the show, whether you've met the man, been to his shows, any of these special events, maybe you know some fact or factoid you want to 
talk about one of my reviews in the past, talk about an album in the future, correct a mistake I've made, maybe you just want to say hi. Whatever it is at all, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com for more day-to-day updates and for instant access. Follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. We always have lots of fun over there, folks. For more bonus Paul or Nothing content, if you can't get enough of Paul or Nothing and you want some extra stuff in the written word format, check out our blog, our sister blog, at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on our socials. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Be sure to check out the YouTube page for exclusive Paul or Nothing highlight episodes. And if you want to help out the show right away, if you want to help us out right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review, whether it's on iTunes, on your podcasting app, on YouTube itself. If you can find it in your heart to leave us a thumbs up or a nice little review, maybe even a nice little comment, then it would certainly be most appreciated by myself here, folks. And I've just got to give a little shout out to everyone who has given us a positive rating recently. I had five five star ones this week, which is, <laughs> yeah, that always puts a smile on your face, right? But if you want to help out the show directly, folks, if you want to help see the show grow, if you want to help get new equipment or maybe you just want to help keep the lights running and pay the hosting fees then please check out our patreon page as i'm sure you know by now patreon is the way that you the public can support independent content creators such as myself by throwing a couple of dollars at my face every month down the internet you know this episode today was brought to you by patreon all of the merch that i am waiting for to come in the post was all paid for via the patreon and That's basically it, folks. It all just goes right back into the show. And it's not all for naught. You're not just giving me money willy-nilly. You get instant access to all sorts of bonus content. You get finished episodes two days before everyone else. You get instantly uploaded full video interviews and podcasts that I do that can sometimes be uploaded weeks before the episode itself. There's also other exclusive video content. You get access to all the notes and scripts I use for episodes and you also get little bonus stuff like this, lost episodes of Paul or Nothing or weird edits that I found in the vaults, that kind of thing. If you're enjoying the show, if you like the fact that there are no ads here, if you want to help see us grow, then please consider joining our Patreon family, which includes such wonderful folks as Moti Ryber, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Right, folks, we are indeed about to crack on with the lost, resalvaged episode of Paul or Nothing, where we cover Give My Regards to Broad Street with Kit O'Toole. Just as a little disclaimer, like I say, not in terms of you know, my guest content or my content or anything said, just in terms of the actual audio quality itself, this isn't up to the usual spec of Paul or nothing. So if you are a new listener, maybe you're one of Kit's fans, then please check out some of our other recent episodes to see how the show is supposed to sound. But anyway, rather nervously, rather trepidatiously, I'm going to say, let's get right into it, folks. Three, two, one, let's go. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get 
contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. And now that we've gotten the housekeeping out of the way, it's high time I introduce to you the poor soul that I've roped into discussing this cinematic nuclear fallout. My guest today is proudly known within the Beatles podcasting community as The Queen. I will call her Her Majesty throughout. You will no doubt have heard her as the co-host on the Solo Beatles video slash podcast talk more talk, of which she is the final member we have actually had on this show. And, of course, her credits also stretch far and wide, covering, but not limited to, When We Was Fab, Things We Said Today, Glass Onion on John Lennon, and The John Lennon Hour. Not only that, but she's also an author, and she's clearly a woman after my own heart, because in 2015 she released the incredibly insightful book called Songs We Were Singing, Guided Tours Through the Lesser Known Beatles Songs, and... It shines a light on all the songs that Beatle and solo Beatles fans should be discussing, but aren't. Everybody out there, please give it up for Her Majesty, Dr. Kit O'Toole. Kit, welcome to the show. How's it going, my friend? Oh, I'm doing great, Sam. It is so good to be here. Uh, I've loved your show. And at last, at last we meet, my friend. No, this has been in the pipeline for at least a year, and I'm glad I've finally pulled my finger out, if I'm really honest. Have you been (laughs) enjoying the apocalypse? (laughs) It's been an interesting year, hasn't it? It's it's really been uh, quite the time, and uh, so far I've I've been safe and sound, so I, I hope you've been healthy as well. Yes, I've already got my antibodies. I've got a family of doctors, so I caught it pretty early on. Don't worry, folks. You, you can't catch it through your headphones. Achoo! Um, <laughs> I've got my hand sanitizer. I'm all good. <laughs> Could you send it through Skype? That'd be really handy, actually. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> I'd love to add up how much free hand sanitizer I've had over the COVID quarantine. Like, I'd love to work out the cash value that I've actually gotten out of this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you could make some good money uh, with that right now. Now, Kit, as always, I'd like to start these interviews off with the most British question ever. So with that in mind, Kit, where are you calling from and what's the weather like? (laughs) Well, I am calling in from um, Clarendon Hills, Illinois, which is in the western suburbs of Chicago. And I'm actually broadcasting right now from my backyard. It is a beautiful day here. Um, It is about, I'd say, like 90 degrees and sunny. It is a beautiful summer day in July. So, uh, so if you if you hear some birds chirping or a lawnmower or something like that as we're talking here today, that's why because I'm in my yard. <laughs> Just as as a little aside, I'm a massive Tom Waits fan. How far are you from Johnsburg, Illinois? Pretty far. That is probably a good couple of hours from here. So, uh, so I, I admit I have never been there, but I certainly uh, certainly know of it. But uh, but that's kind of yeah, that's kind of out in the country uh, from from where I am. But uh, but I'll I'll have to try and make it out there one of these days. Tom Waits is uh, is uh, quite a quite a talent. So uh, you know, great songwriter and then you know, quite a quite a unique uh, artist. Not that I ever plug my Tom Waits podcast on this show, ever. Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) I must admit, though, I thought when I was going to be interviewing Yanks for this podcast, that it would just be L.A. and New York. And I'm so glad to see how homogenous and far-reaching the U.S. Beatles podcasting community really is. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, there are quite a, a number of us out here in Chicago that are uh, Beatle geeks, and you know, we uh, in fact uh, the Fest for Beatles fans, uh, which unfortunately the, the Chicago convention will not be held this year due to the apocalypse. But we uh, there are a number of us out here that uh, have radio programs and, of course, uh, podcasters and that sort of thing. So yeah, there's a there's a community of us out here. So uh, so yep, it's not just LA and uh, and New York. We're out here too doing our thing. And Kit, you're the first person on this show to have the common sense not to actually name those other podcasts and radio shows. So. <laughs> well, you know, we're a little competitive. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> As per tradition, Kit, when I first have someone on this show, I like to gauge their general thoughts on the Beatles and the Fab Four. And while I don't want your answers to be short by any means, I do want the first thing that pops into your pretty little head, if you will. Oh, I, nice. I see what you did there. Oh, puns are going to be coming left, right, and center today. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. What, you know what? I'll actually change this question to be a little fairer. What is your favorite Beatles song today? Oh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm, that's two Tomorrow Never Knows in a row we've had now, actually. Really? Yeah, a very popular song, clearly. And it's one of the few songs from Revolver that McCartney did not drag out for this uh, <laughs> soundtrack that we're going to be talking about today. Um, do you have such thing as a least favorite Beatles song? Oh, boy, that's the second time I've been asked that on a, on a show recently. You know, I, I hate to say it, but probably long, long, long. Um, <laughs> I have to be brutally honest here. Um, it's probably the one I skip over, to be completely honest, when I'm listening to the White Album. I hate to admit it, although it, it really did sound great in the remix and the remastering for the box set that came out a couple of years ago. I will admit that. It sounded great, but admittedly, not one of my favorites. I'm sorry, Sam. I'm sorry. Can I can I still do the show? <laughs> it was nice talking to you, Kit. It really was. <laughs> this is why I haven't had a woman on the on the show. This is exactly why. You know what? <laughs> I'm sorry, another kind of mind, but I'm sorry, Diana. You know, we're obviously going to have to uh, skip that as well. Oh. <laughs> shout, shout out to a, another another kind kind of mind. They're my favourite part at the moment. <laughs> Kit, is there such thing as an overrated Beatles song to your ear? Oh gosh, that is, now that's hard to say. I don't know if I would say overrated, but I mean, Maybe overplayed? I, okay, over okay, overplayed. I guess I would say I'm. A, I will admit I'm a little burned out on "I Want to Hold Your Hand." I understand, of course, it's it's an important song uh, in in the Beatles canon, but I could go without hearing that for for a while. You know. After your comments about long, 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 I'm certainly not going to be holding your hands. Do not worry about that. <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't be holding hands right now anyway. Unless, unless you've got one of those weird plastic walls that people are hugging each other through. Have you seen that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I can't wait for McCartney's post-COVID McCartney 3 album that he must be working on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> But hopefully, though, maybe no racial slurs in the title of this one. You know, hopefully. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Just, yeah, be smarter this time. Now, 
What is the most underrated or underplayed Beatles tune? Oh, my goodness. Underrated or underplayed. Okay. I was just talking about this on, on another ca- uh, podcast recently. I'll be back. Mm, thank you. You've oh, you've oh, you're back. You're back in the game, kid. All right, all right. I've redeemed myself. Yeah, it is so. No one talks about it in terms of a hard day's night. It's so good. The chords and the harmonies are incredible. Yeah, it. I love the harmonies, um, and uh, the chord changes are gorgeous. And uh, and I just think it also represents and and uh, cheap plug coming. I talk about it in my book, songs we were singing. Um, <laughs> that uh, you know, it also represents a turning point uh, in I think in songwriting too. That you know, it really it goes beyond just um, you know she loves you or I want to hold uh, hold my uh, hold your hand. That it's really a, a story about, you know, this sort of troubled relationship. Um, and uh, kind of interesting that it, also that the, you know, woman in, in some ways is in charge in this relationship. Um, you know, that, that John is sort of placing himself in the position of, you know, that the you know, woman is, is treating him badly, but but he knows he'll be back again. You know, I mean, it's it's an interesting kind of change of roles. You've got those great harmonies. You've got the beautiful chord changes. It's just a real game changer, I I think, in in the Beatles and, and, and just a leap forward in artistry in many ways. And you never hear much about it. And, you know, why? Beatles for Sale and Help and the kind of Bob Dylan era of their songwriting. You're so right there. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for saying that. Good, I've redeemed myself. Excellent. <laughs> right, let's talk about objectivity and, you know, not opinions. What is the best post-Beatles record? Oh, best post-Beatles re- Boy, that is really tough because there are a number of candidates there. But I would say... Uh, Boy, and I hate to say this on a Paul McCartney podcast, but um, plastic no band, isn't it? You're going to say plastic no band? No, no, no. Although that's a that's a candidate. I mean, that's really a candidate. But I'll tell you, all things must pass. Knocks me out. I mean, I, every time. I just think that is such a, a an incredible statement that uh, that George made. Um, it it that album is just so dense with um you know with with themes um and must have i mean of course i wasn't around when it first came out i was uh i I was born in 72 so i was uh you know it came out just a year before but it must have just knocked people out when that came you know came out that that people probably thought where was george hiding all of this stuff i mean he covered so many different themes in in that you know about spirituality um of course there was even a, you know one of the great kiss off songs wawa um you know there were just uh, and you had so many different wonderful artists backing him up um i it, it just is it's personally a very moving record to me um and it's just gotten better with time um i i think so to for personal reasons as well as objectively um i think that is the most impressive um post beat post beatles record but boy you know close call though plastic ono band 
I mean, that is a fantastic record. Band on the Run, I mean, what can you say? That is an incredible record as well. So, but I'd say by a hair, all things must pass wins for me. Well, I mean, thank God you didn't say goodnight Vienna or something like that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just to shock you, but yes. you know, or Ringo, or, Ring, or Ringo the Fourth or something. I, I should have really shocked you. <laughs> oh, I really wish his album titles weren't punchlines, but they just are, aren't they? I know, I know. <laughs> shout, shout out to things we said today in the great 80th uh, Ringo's birthday episode that just came. Yeah, out. and and actually, we um, talk more talk. We did an 80th birthday salute and talked about our our favorite Ringo albums. And I will say the Ringo album, that is some great pop. I mean, it, there were some fun songs on there. And uh, Time Takes Time is is worth checking out, too, his uh, uh, early 90s comeback album. That has some great tunes on it. So it's not in the same category, obviously, uh, as All Things Must Pass or Band on the Run or anything. But at his best, his albums can be fun. You know, that... Going back to All Things Must Pass just for a moment. Yeah. What I've noticed about that is every time you listen to it, you're like, oh shit, that song's on it as well. Oh, and this song's on it as well. Oh, it's like it's, it's like thriller. It's like, oh my god, all of these songs are great. And you yep. know all of them. Like, even if you don't know them offhand, like, oh, I've definitely heard it before somewhere. And exactly. Hit after hit after hit. And even like the more quieter songs, like The Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp or something like, 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 like that, it, it just stands up to the, the best of all the solo Beatles work. I, I really it, can't disagree with you there at all. That's a good point. Because, yeah, you do. Yeah, as you listen to it, you're like, oh, I forgot this one was on there. And, and yeah, and there's so many different styles on it. Uh, it it's just such an impressive, uh, impressive work, just a masterpiece. Our favorite thing about it, though, is the interview with Phil Spector in um, uh, Living in the Material World, where he's like, and then we have to go, where, 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 where? And it's like, it's like, oh, my God, this this psychopath producer. <laughs> yeah, can, can you, I know, isn't it amazing to, to think that, that, uh, yeah, such a psychopath could have produced something so beautiful like that? I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, couldn't he have been, like, a nice psychopath like David Byrne or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No kidding. Oh my God, Tina Weymouth working with George Harrison as well. My God, that that'd be fun as well. But we're not here to talk about my future Talking Heads podcast. Last one is your favorite Beatles film out of the main five. I I guess you know what I'm I'm really torn because uh, yeah I've always been torn between Hard Day's Night and Help because for a storyline for for just you know I would say Hard Day's Night um, because it it's just from beginning to end it it was just the perfect. You know, I, I even hesitate to say jukebox movie because I, I love how I think it was Roger Ebert who coined it the the Citizen Kane of jukebox movies, and it really was. I mean, it it you know it just really set a new standard. Um, and even today, the the sequences, the music sequences, I, I mean, they just set the standard for for music video. Uh, the writing was sharp. 
Um, and uh, and talking about George Harrison, I mean, I I thought in some ways George Harrison was the best of uh, you know the acting, and that we're we're going to be talking about acting in just a few minutes. Bothy, yeah, oh, he's great, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, that scene with with him and the, um, you know, the, the, I don't know how you describe it, but sort of the, the would-be fashion uh, trendsetter, um, I mean, that scene is just marvelous. I, I love it. Uh, that's one of my favorite scenes in, in the whole movie. Plus, I, I love the scene, too, uh, with the Beatles in the, um, in the train with the older uh, gentleman. I mean, to me, that, that even just, just sort of summarizes what was happening in the 60s of the clashes of the generations. Um, you know, it, it just there's so many wonderful scenes in that. But Help is a, is a runner-up because it's not quite as good. The plot is silly and, and, you know, and yes, the Beatles were stoned throughout the whole movie. I know all that stuff. But for a, a piece of pop art, it's it's a lot of fun and and it's very effective um you know the the fashions i mean it's 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 a really a snapshot of its time you know and i i appreciate it for that but for a coherent storyline if you want to call it that uh i would have to go with a hard day's night i've tried to warm to help over the years and mm-hmm. after watching Give My Regards to Broad Street, wow, I, I like Help a lot more. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know what, Kit? Let's press on. Um, the most important question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1, one being filled with rage and, and 10 being totally at peace with it, how upset are you that I didn't ask you to talk about a better topic today? <laughs> you know what? I mean, honestly, I, I'm, I'm not... It, Raged at all? I'm I'm not because I I really had a lot of fun with this. I mean I'm I'm not enraged. Really, I'm I'm really uh, I would say you know a seven because <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I really you're not such a bad boy at all. You might have no values, but but uh, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> But uh, but no, this this is really it was fun to revisit this movie seriously. Now let me ask you, let, you know what? Let's do a bit of history here. So you would have been twelve when this came out, then. That's right. That's right. Were you already a Beatles fan by the time Broad Street was released in shops and cinemas? Not a, a hardcore one yet. I was just starting to to get into the Beatles. I, I do remember when this came out. I didn't see it in the theaters. Um, I was, as I said, not quite uh, into it yet. I did buy the album. Um, I did buy the album, and I have the 45 uh, to No More Lonely Nights. I did buy that at, at the time, because I, I absolutely remember seeing the video when it came out. I remember him, you know, doing, uh, making the press rounds and reading articles about it. So I was just kind of at the beginning of getting kind of interested uh, in the Beatles. I can't tell if that's, like, the best time or worst time to be a Beatles fan. Like, I mean... <laughs> The 80s seems like, you know, for a guy like me who loves to be a contrarian and a hipster and going against the grain, I feel like I was born 20 years too early. I would have loved to have been, a, you know, a hipster in the 80s going, actually, the Beatles are are much better than Devo, actually. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it was an interesting time, and you know, and it was interesting how you know I got to uh, the Beatles because really I got into them through Michael Jackson. Uh, because, you know, when I was that age, I mean, Michael was everywhere, you know, and of course he did all those duets with Paul. Um, and, uh, you know, as well. Yes. Christ. Like he was, he was better looking than all four Beatles combined. I'm going to say it right now. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, he was he was it. And so when he did uh, The Girl's Mine and, you know, and of course, I bought Thriller. I mean, I was I was a, a huge fan. And uh, so then they did Say, Say, Say. And I bought my first Paul album through that. Uh, you know, I got Pipes of Peace. That was my very first Paul album. And that was through Michael. Um, first album as well. What a cracking first album to buy for Paul as well. Yeah, exactly. That was my first. And, and, you know, and I'm really glad you said that because when I've said that to other fans, you know, particularly first generation, generation, they say, oh, you know, what a horrible album to be introduced to, you know, to Paul. And I'm like, give me a break. I mean, it wasn't that bad. So bad, pipes mm-hmm. of peace, uh, average person. Whoever says that to you, Kit, bring them round my way. I'll tell them to fuck off for you. No way. <laughs> well, How thank you. Dare they? Oh. <laughs> Seriously, though, I've been told they're like, oh, that's the worst album. I'm like, give me a break. I, I mean, I think they're. I, I don't think that's his worst album at all. I mean, there were some great moments on there. So uh, yeah, so I mean, that was you know, so I I had kind of an interesting introduction to him. So, uh, yeah, so by this time, I was kind of like, oh, I'm getting more interested in this Paul McCartney guy. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I mean, I knew who he was but before that. But uh, so that's when um, then I started buying a bit more of his stuff. So that's when Broad Street came out. Um, I, you know, I, I loved No More Lonely Nights. Uh, that that song really grabbed me when when it first came out, and uh, and so then I bought the forty five, and then bought the album, and um, and yeah, I mean, and, and Lonely Nights was a huge hit. I mean, huge hit back in the day. Yeah, this is back when a huge hit could just be a top ten, not just yes, you know. Yep, exactly, and that and the video was was everywhere. Now um, I didn't get MTV at this point. Chicago was very slow in in getting cable, so I mean I was watching it on you know other uh, other channels. But that video was played a lot. I mean you know it was. I mean this movie was really being hyped um, at at the time. I absolutely remember that. Well, there's no reason why it shouldn't be like. It's it it's awful that it turns out that fucking Harvey Me Too Weinstein was the bloke who helped co-finance and promote this film. Uh, yeah, the obvious hashtag love Me Too. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I forgot that 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 he was involved in this. Yeah, that's that's true. But uh, but oh yeah, and I remember on it though. You know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. A hard day's night. It should have made 23, 24 million, at least in the American box office. And 
it might not even made enough money back to cover the cost of the ballroom dancing sequence. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but it seemed like it'd be a surefire hit at the time, right? You've got Paul McCartney. He's the lead. You've got Beatles songs. Um, you know, you've got a hit single from it. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> exactly. I mean, could it be argued that this was just an issue of timing? Like, did Paul wait too long to start work on his grand musical? Like, if Wall had come out in 77, 78, after Wings Over America, mm-hmm. I could see this being, you know, something akin to Sound of Music or Mary Poppins or Oliver, a movie we're going to reference a lot in this episode, quite clearly, but... <laughs> I don't... Yeah, I don't know if if it was that. I mean, it, it could be. I think part of it was, and and this really came through to me as I was watching this again. That um, and and this would would have escaped me you know, at twelve years old. That um, you know, I I think this was definitely a time when he was really you know at a time where he was trying to figure out where he fit in the contemporary landscape. I mean, you know, he in in the seventies, obviously he was still scoring a lot of hits and maybe he, maybe you're right. I mean, maybe he should have struck when the iron was hot, you know, when, when he was really on a roll with, with all of his hits with wings and everything in the eighties, you know, I think he, I mean, he of course had a great uh, hit with tug of war. I mean, he was doing really well, but then I think, you know, he was trying to figure out where does he fit in the contemporary landscape, he teamed up with Michael Jackson, which which I thought was a smart move, um, a very smart move. But um, he, I think, was trying to figure out. All right, now you know what is this this you know new musical landscape? Where do I fit in? And so you know, with Pipes of Peace, um, you know, he didn't do as well critically or commercially uh, as Tug of War. So, like you notice, and we'll we'll get into this a bit more in a minute. But with Broad Street, I mean, he had you know the the uh, scene with uh, Silly Love Songs with the break dancer in it. Um, you know, he's so desperately trying to figure out how to fit in with the current sounds of the time. And, easy you know... To rap, at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Well, my name is Paulie, and I'm here to say... <laughs> in the USA, you know, like... Could you... Oh, my God. Oh, that, my God. To play, you know? Yeah, I mean, that would have... Oh, dear. And so, yeah, at least he didn't do that. And and But you, when you see the video, um, to, which you, of course, can find on YouTube, to the play-out version of No More Lonely Nights, that has tons of, of breakdancers in it and everything. So you can just see he is so desperately trying to, to be current, you know. And so I, I think that that was part of the problem with this, that he wanted to do a in the interviews he talked about wanting to do an old-fashioned musical but at the same time you know he was so desperately trying to figure out where he fit in and you know it just didn't really work so maybe if he had as you said you know i think you make a good point maybe in the 70s when he was fitting in just fine with the times um you know where he did have his finger on the pulse of the the sound then maybe you know maybe it would have worked out better but i think by the 80s he was in this period and uh you know didn't quite work 
The term vanity project is possibly never more appropriate than today. Um, mm. Though I'm yet to see the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton, Sergeant Pepper. So this might not be the worst thing we are yet to review on this podcast. Oh, you haven't seen that yet? No, because I'm not a sadomasochist, Kit. <laughs> oh, you're in for a treat. <laughs> Also, just as a quick aside, you know when you said you bought the the soundtrack, were you affected by the whole, do I buy the vinyl, the cassette, or the CD debacle? (laughs) You know, I I got the vinyl, uh, you know, when it came out, because that was pretty much all that that was available. I mean, you know, when, when I was a kid and, um, yeah. And I mean, when I found out later that, yeah, there were all the, the, the CD, you know, had all these extra tracks on it and everything. I couldn't believe it, you know? So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it was, and then I remember, you know, as a kid turning over the, you know, on the, uh, on the album, when it said that this album is longer than the usual, uh, uh, vinyl record and all this stuff. I mean, it, it was really, uh, crazy at the time i years later i got the cd version but um but yeah that was that was crazy but yeah back then um you know i mean cd players were not plentiful i mean you know they were expensive i didn't know anybody back then that had one um i mean it was those were rare so uh it was uh, yeah that was that was crazy that uh you know, there were all these different configurations. Uh, of course, Paul still loves to do that stuff, to have all these different all different configurations. He just, knows that all too well, doesn't he? I know, doesn't he? Yep, he, always, he gets every single configuration, where with me, it's just like, oh, God, you know, the headaches start to spread. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine, though, if like, the White Album came out with, oh, by the way, there's something called Not Guilty and Carnival of Light. It's not on this release, but go fuck yourself. And then, you know... I know it's it's just incredible. Yeah, because I remember you know having the the LP, and then years later saying, oh, and then there's a you know hearing another track, you know, good uh, good night, princess. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> it does sound like a lost B side track. It, it, it's it, it's so fitting. Yes, um, I've got to ask you a, a slightly uh, dubious question here. Um, mm-hmm. How did you watch this film? I can't watch this film legally in this country. There's no DVD release. Do you have this on DVD? Uh, I I actually don't. Um, I have it. On, I had it on VHS. You know, what? years. VH. What's a VHS kit? <laughs> um, it is a. Uh, it's a tape. Uh, a tape from uh, probably I got in the. Jeez, 80s, 90s, early 90s, something like that. Um, and this, but I mean, I can't play it anymore because it's, I mean, that, that, uh, format is long gone. Um, and so I actually had to watch it on YouTube. Now, I do have to reiterate, there is not a free rip of Give My Regards to Broad Street available for free on YouTube right now. There is not MPL. Do not investigate any further. Um, Oddly enough, though, when I first arranged this with you, Kit, there was only the one rip, and it was split into, like, ten, ten-minute clips. Yes, that's what I saw. Yeah. Two, Two weeks ago, the full film was uploaded in one video. No way! 
way. I yes. didn't see that. Anything like HD and everything. Like, I had to, like, rub my eyes like it was a Disney character waking up or something. It was like, what? And it was there, yeah. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. No, I, I didn't see that. Wow. Yep, I saw the one that was, yeah, as you said, split up into all different clips. For legal reasons, I assume. Yes. Right. Let's 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 move on to our main topic of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, after much deliberation, Kit, I thought the best way for us to approach this material would be to go through the film chronologically and address the songs as and when they come up. Because yep. if you do the film, then the album, we're going to retread a lot of ground. But right. so all the different versions of the album with all the different songs, and I think the movie's the official, the official, you know, product. And right. You know, the idea of the film's bad and the soundtrack's good. That, that's been done to death. So let's just treat this as one package. Let's begin. Let's uh, do it. So we start with some very strange... <laughs> very good. <laughs> what is that? Then <laughs> <laughs> um, like a little finger traces the title card. Did anyone besides Paul get the pun in this title? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I know, but he he thought it was very clever. You know, he he really did. Um, you know, it's it was his nod to. Uh, you know, we know he loves old musicals. You know, he he loves. Uh, you know, as, as we know from uh, from his uh, past uh, compositions and and uh, well, even the James Paul McCartney special that he did. All the you know, gotta sing, gotta dance. I mean, he loves these old you know, Broadway musical kind of references. So, you know, it's give my regards to Broadway. It's, it's, uh, you know, his little pun on that. So, uh, so yeah, that, that, and he wanted this to be a throwback to old Broadway musicals. So that was his, you know, nod to, to that. So that's presumably what that pun was about. I'm a guest and some part-time host on a podcast called Pun It, which is a game show all about puns. And mm-hmm. I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, it's not funny or clever. It's just not. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an awful pun. Um, and, folks, I don't have any technical knowledge of music ever, but I do have a film degree from one of the worst universities in the UK. So I'm going to be putting my film hat on today. Oh, great. And... Opening shots, opening images on a film are incredibly important. Just think of, like, you know, the opening scene from Gladiator, you know, the, the huge fight between the barbarians and the Romans, you know. they Or the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, you know, these things that really leave you in awe and wonder. And what do we get? This this cr- two-second shot of some jackhammers tearing up concrete, fading <laughs> into... The shot of, like, raining traffic jams. This is not edge-of-your-seat cinema kit, is it? I mean, no. even the James McCartney TV special with Big Barn Bed had a better opening sequence than this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't grab you right away, does it? Doesn't, doesn't really grab your interest. Like, that gripping stuff. Do you think he was trying to go for, like, a Wizard of Oz style, like, we're just in Kansas kind of opening? <laughs> That's that's what I was kind of wondering too, because yeah, that this is like the drab everyday world, and we're about to go into a world of fantasy. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, the everyday world where you're being driven by your chauffeur in your Rolls Royce kit. Yeah, you know, we every all, day. We all, you know, sympathise with that. We've all, <laughs> we've, we've all been there, you know? Sure. <laughs> I can't remember who the original director, Paul, uh, something Webb, Peter Webb, was it? Something like that? Yes, yes, Peter Webb. He was like, Paul, you're going to come across as a massive asshat if this is your opening scene. And yeah, he does. I mean, if this was going to be some sort of Emperor's New Clothes style story where mm-hmm. he, he has to be humbled like Thor, then this would be perfect. But since we're in the middle of Thatcherite England and Reaganomics America, it yep. seems a bit far removed from the audience's own life experiences and we're just off to the worst start in my opinion yeah tone deaf yeah <laughs> which is ironic for the man who almost invented tone yeah <laughs> that's right <laughs> and then we cut to the show they're going oh no oh no <laughs> oh no oh, look I'm sure Paul thought that this was a very natural way to get in some exposition into the movie but it is anything but it's incredibly forced and we meet Paul's manager who's totally not Steve Shrimpton <laughs> at all uh, Paul's not having a go at his manager who he would soon sack uh, quite mm-hmm. famously uh, mm-hmm. yep. great example of ego in the opening credits I don't know if you noticed this kit but when it says screenplay by Paul McCartney yep it shows a shot of Paul literally doing some writing in the back seat of his car. Very subtle. Yeah, just, just so we, we understand. Yep, absolutely. Oh, I uh, get it now. I understand. <laughs> exactly. And I and I couldn't help but, but think back to, of course, the way he uh, wrote, and I kind of use the term loosely, um, Magical Mystery Tour. Wasn't he supposed to have uh, sketched that out as like a, what was it, a pie chart or something? Like it all goes round, then divides it in four. Yeah. Now you think he would have learned from that, that, you know, that's not a script. (laughs) And. uh, The Mystery Tour is a circle, the Beatles are a square, um, the moon is L and seven, or, you know, I don't know what's going on in this case. Yep. Exactly. Um, this opening scene is really all over the place for me, Kit. And what's indicative here is the fact that this is... I didn't get this until the second time I watched it after I read a few reviews. This is a movie full of dream sequences. And the language of film, the language of filmmaking is so important. And all this film needed was a little wibble wobble wibble wobble wibble wobble, like as a little visual transition from the real world to the dream world and the translation of this concept is so poorly done that i Mm -hmm. genuinely didn't know that certain things were and weren't dream sequences i'm going to bring this up a lot um i'm not going to blame the director you know, yep. he was handed a big tofu turkey, just like um, <laughs> Michael Lindsay Hogg with Let It Be. Uh, mm-hmm. He's honestly doing the best with what he's been given. But as we know, Paul kind of wanted a yes man. And then at the end, when oh, I should have just gone to Steven Spielberg, Spielberg wouldn't have touched this movie with a 10 foot <laughs> pole. <laughs> but 
No, that's a really good point, though, because that that was true that the first time I watched this years ago, yeah, I wasn't sure when he was dreaming and when he wasn't. I mean, there were times like that where, uh, I mean, some of it was kind of obvious, but but yeah, I mean, like even some of the music musical sequences, you were thinking that. I mean, obviously the Victorian sequence and all that. I mean, some of the others, yeah, you were like, is he shooting a video? Is this a dream? What is this? I mean... Genuine question, Kit. Do you think Paul believes in all the lofty, overly intellectual, Kubrickian elements involved with filmmaking, like cinematography, shot composition, symbolism, thematics, structure, pacing, hidden messages? My gut's telling me no. No. I mean, that's the thing. I I think that, and and I'm not saying it's just Paul. I mean, I think, you know, there are probably many people who who have made terrible movies that, yeah, I think they don't understand. and, And, hey, that's why I don't make movies because (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'll throw myself in here. It is way more complicated than you, you think it is. I mean, it's, it really is. And that's why I'm not a fiction writer. I'm a nonfiction writer. It it takes a certain set of skills and, and a lot of things. And I think, you know, a lot of people think it's, it's easy to shoot a movie and, 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 or, or to write a screenplay. And, it isn't. And here's exhibit A. <laughs> so ironic that even in the film, his manager says, you do the songs, I'll run that, I'll run the business. I wish someone had told Paul that during the making of this fucking movie, you know? Yeah, I mean? right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <sighs> yep. Sorry, folks, there's going to be a lot of heavy breathing into the mic with this. Exactly. And, and again, and I'll say, you know, Love Paul. I, you know, I mean, I hate yeah. to bash him because, I mean, really, I love his music. I mean, I'm a fan, but you know, <laughs> this. You've got to pull the bandaid off. You've got to pull the bandaid off. You've yeah, this this was this was a misstep. What can I tell you? We then cut to Paul inside of this over-the-top greaser speed with flames painted on the side, and it's got a Knight Rider computer that tells him his schedule for the day, and great premise for a scene on paper, and yet somehow they managed to make it incredibly drab and dull. And, like, if this is meant to be a dream sequence kit, are Paul's dreams just the most boring thing ever? Well, and you know what? And, and this was throughout the entire movie. I thought he looked either bored or or i mean you're just like okay you're you're in this dream sequence you're in this hot car okay you're you're supposed to be dreaming that you're you know you're on the open road you're in this hot car you're at you know you have this this cool computer in your car which by the way was sort of uh you know kind of like what we have today i mean it was kind of yeah i mean isn't that isn't that? I mean, I kind of thought that was cool. Like, wow, that that sort of was, uh, <laughs> and you know, omen of things to come. That was kind of neat. But anyway, but I'm like, okay, so you've got this. Why do you look so miserable? <laughs> Maybe the first song will cheer him up a little bit. At the two minute mark, we get "Good Day Sunshine." And mm-hmm. it comes on the radio diegetically, which I thought was a pretty nice touch. Yes. <laughs> it's meant to represent the literal sunshine in the scene around him. I do get that. I'm not sure mm-hmm. it's the best song to start the film off. Mm-hmm. Um, Kit, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to ask this same question pretty much every time we come across a song that's already been remade. But what are your thoughts on the original? What do you think of the remake? 
Well, of course. I mean, it's it's you know, love the song. I mean, what can I tell you? Um, it's you know, I I was amazed at how. I mean, he almost, I mean, copied it note for note. I mean, it, it you know, really is, is almost identical to, uh, to the original. Um, a really uh, little difference. I mean, it was a, one of those moments, though, where I kind of thought, why, you know, in a way, why did he, you know, why did he do that? I mean, why did he bother remaking it if he was just going to do it note for note for note um i mean it was it was fine um i just kind of think i i would you know i i think i would stick with the original i i prefer it um i don't know i don't know i i just thought this was kind of an unnecessary remake in a way um but uh it was fine um but i just thought i don't know i just thought the original maybe had a little more energy to it um but uh but i mean it just sounded as i said almost identical um and so for that reason i kind of thought why why do it then but uh but you know it was a good remake but uh, just sort of, I, I thought, kind of pointless in a way. So I don't know. What do you think? Okay. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, Paul's remaking all these Beatles songs. Is he going to do something really interesting, like add a whole five-minute instrumental scene to the end? Exactly. No, he's just doing it the same, but with an 80s production, which... Look, he wasn't to know, but man, that product that 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 that, that Jeff Emmerich '60s production has aged so well, mm-hmm. uh, and his voice was better in '66. Um, yeah, why is there so much Revolver on this album kit? Why is there no Abbey Road or Rubber Soul? What's going on? Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder why he he was so. Heavy. I mean, hey, Revolver's a wonderful album. It's probably my favorite Beatles album. But yeah, you'd think that if he wanted to revisit, you know, his Beatles past, yeah, why didn't he? Why didn't he choose from all different Beatle albums? That's a good point. Uh, I I don't know, but yeah, I just thought. I mean, as I said, it's not a bad remake. Um, but yeah, why just repeat it almost note for note and not add, add anything new to it? Um, it's yeah, it just seemed kind of pointless. There are so many songs I would have loved to have heard him redo, like mm. a more modern version of Michelle or Fixing mm. Up. Right. Maybe he should have distanced himself from the Pepper movie. Who knows? Yep. <laughs> I mean, this is still before Revolver had its second legs, you know, and was kind of regarded. Maybe Paul was actually ahead of the curve on this one. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> then we move on to the dramatic incident, the inciting incident for all you film buffs out there. The tapes are missing, Kit. The tapes are missing. <laughs> and and how does Paul react, Kit? How does Paul react to this revelation? Wow, he said. <laughs> <laughs> it's like his newspaper's been misplaced, isn't it? Yeah, a, he doesn't seem all that bothered by it, and and you know. And I remember when I was watching this again, I I thought because when I first saw saw this years ago, I was like. Okay, you know, I mean, yes, that's certainly distressing that the tapes are missing, but why does that mean that his record company is then going to be taken over by these, like, shady... 
like, why does that mean that his company will be taken over by these creepy looking people? You know, I mean, like, and, and watching it again, I'm like, yeah, I still don't get it. Like, what, how does that, you know, so here we go, plot hole number one. <laughs> Are you telling me, okay, A, what business transaction would draft up a contract that would allow these terms to take place? Right. Who would sign such a contract? And are you also telling me that Lee Eastman wouldn't sue the shit out of Rathbone? <laughs> Come on. And also, why can't they delay the album? Paul cancelled a whole Japanese tour twice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. This this made no sense the first time I saw it. Makes no sense now. I mean, it's just yeah. And that one guy, that really creepy looking uh, uh, guy. I forget his. I can't remember the actor's name. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, <laughs> you know. So you know, cigarette holders and brandy glasses and sunglasses. You know, he's he plays the part of the ridiculous villain. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So you're just like, I don't know who the, you know, why this guy is so, I mean, he looks evil. So, I mean, you know, he means business, but you just like, what, what, what exactly is he going to do? And so, I mean, it, it just absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. I kind of thought like maybe it'd be, oh, like Rathbone was behind the theft of the tapes and that would make his presence in the movie not completely pointless. Yeah. But- no, he's not involved in the theft of the tapes. No. Nope. And, you know, oh, okay, maybe they can make him do like an Alan Klein or something. No, they don't do that either. Um, it's going to be the start of a long list of would have, should have, could have. Yeah, um, but but shout out to Brian Brown, you know. I mean, poor guy. He was, uh, you know, he's, he's just kind of stuck. Be having to look worried in, in the movie and all because I, I like Brian Brown. I mean, he's a, he's a good actor, but you know, poor guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he's just sort of stuck with this part, and uh, but uh, but you know, poor guy. <laughs> of the villains in a Paul McCartney story are the men in suits. How original! I mean, what's next, Paul? <laughs> Themes of freedom. But yeah, but yeah, that just yeah, this is just right off the bat gigantic plot hole. Yeah, it just. I mean, even the premise of the whole missing tapes being important is so arrogantly self-serving. Like, um, actually, Paul, they won't give a shit if these tapes don't get released. I mean, you're not exactly doing well in the eighties. I mean, again, wouldn't it have been great if it was about him being unpopular and struggling to? find his way in the modern pop music scene and then he has this triumphant comeback at the end but no he's not going to risk his self-serving public image like that Mm -hmm. well and the tapes are so important at various points in the movie they glow yes (laughs) are you telling me quentin tarantino was not influenced by that when he made pulp fiction and the oh clearly I never thought I'd mention Pulp Fiction on this podcast, but I'm so glad I finally have. I, I never thought you'd mention Pulp Fiction and Broad Street in the like the same context, so that's that's shocking enough for me. Well, I mean, this is clearly taking place in some sort of 1980s where Paul McCartney's still a massive deal. You know, maybe this is in the alternative reality 80s that Joaquin Phoenix's Joker film took place in, but even that 1980s was a little more believable than this. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, hey, Paul, do you know what you get? You get what you fucking deserve, you know. Yeah, right. 
Um, oh. I can't believe that there weren't more puns on this being a day in the life of Paul McCartney. Like, that was the real pun. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and as I recall, the ads like actually try to, you know, to uh, advertise this as the a day in the life of a rock star, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. And uh, kind of coke or hookers, Kate. If I'm honest, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you just think in some ways like, wow, if this is a day in the life of a rock star, this is pretty boring. I do not want to be a rock star, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd rather drink a rock star. Than, than yeah, drink. right. Exactly. Um, then we go to the studio where Paul's going to record some more songs with Ringo. Um, again, it, why are they recording new songs if the album's already completed? Uh, is this like yep. a protracted? Tug of War Pipes of Peace session, is this a new album or just another plot hole kit? Yeah, well I thought that too it's just like, wait a minute, I thought the tapes were all gone, so what is this for? Yeah, that's it exactly, and um, and as I was preparing for this and I was, you know, looking over various notes, I love there was some reviewer who said, now you would think, okay, Paul and Ringo are together again well, isn't you know? Aren't they thrilled to see each other? Isn't this going to be fun? No, they're, they're you know, no, they're they're just kind of like, hey, tapes are missing. Oh, and that means we have to do it over again. Oh, that's it. <laughs> I mean, you know, was it a genuine novelty to see these two together? They'd already reunited for Take It Away a couple of years prior. Right, yeah. So, I mean, that. yeah, so it's not like they're reunited after this long period of time. But, I mean, you know, you just think, like, wouldn't this, isn't this supposed to be fun to see them on screen together, working together? And they just make it so dreary. I don't know what it is. I mean, I can hear Ken Michael shouting, Sam, you're thinking about this too much, but I'm going to fight back with tooth and nail here. Yeah, because, I mean, you just think they should have more chemistry than this. Well, I mean, Ringo is clearly, after two seconds, the more natural actor than Paul will ever be. No, sure. Absolutely. It's also great to see George Martin. I mean, he he appears more in this than he does in, like, the Let It Be documentary. He actually has a line of dialogue. Uh, yep. You know, Paul. Yep, and at least he seems pretty natural <laughs> in it. I mean, he's just himself, of course, but, you know, he seems less self-conscious. It would have been great if you said, gentlemen, you've just recorded your, your first number 12. <laughs> uh, oh. This lack of presence in this movie is so in your face. Like, John wasn't going to appear in this, but I would have liked Luke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, everyone back. Maybe they can do the jam song from the, from the Let It Be sessions, you know? Um, around the 12 minute mark we get the medley because of course there's going to be a fucking medley of uh, Yesterday Here, There and Everywhere and Wanderlust Um, it why is Wanderlust uh, in a medley with these two classic Beatles songs is Paul trying to tell us that his post-Beatle work matches up to Yesterday and Here, There and Everywhere or is it just for musical reasons do you think you know that's an interesting question because it, it is odd to to throw Wanderlust in with those two songs. I will say though, 
um, I I kind of liked it. Um, I I I did like. I will say I didn't like this version of yesterday as well as the original. Um, I I don't know. I mean, it's um, you know. I, I don't know. I just thought this this version just sounded not as it just sounded a little trying to think of how to describe it, a little flatter to me. I mean, not not off tune, but I mean, just uh, not as I don't know, just not as spirited, perhaps uh, as, as the original. But um, but I, I don't know. I will say that um, Wanderlust did kind of fit in. Um, strangely enough, and and I will say I, I love that song. I I do love Wonderlust. Um, so I I will admit that um, it's you know I'm a little prejudiced I guess. <laughs> so um, so I'll and I and I actually like this version a little more than the tug of war version. Um, I a lot of people you know. You know, I like I like the uh, the string arrangement better, and and some of the uh, horns too. So I I will say that. So I'm you know a little um, a little prejudiced. So, but it, but I I know what you're saying. It's it's interesting that that he would throw that in. You know, kind of as if he's you know a you know, saying this is just as good as uh, the other. So I I mean it's. You know, I, I can see that that could seem kind of, um, I don't know, like he's um, trying to argue, well, my solo stuff is just as good and should be equated with my Beatles work. But I don't know. It works for me. He could have done like yesterday, here, there, and everywhere, and then bit bop. Yeah, yeah. If he had done that, I would have said, "Okay, Paul, you know, stop smoking that stuff." But, but here, there, and everywhere, I thought that did kind of flow into Wanderlust fairly well, um, and uh, so, so that actually didn't bother me um, as as much as I thought it would. But yes, if he had done something else, yeah, bip bop or something, that would have really bothered me. But, but Wanderlust, I don't know. That, that really didn't bother me. I, I thought that worked fairly well. Kit, there is an acoustic song on Tug of War that would have been very appropriate, and it's called Here Today. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that would have solicited more tears than he would have been able to mop up in the cinemas. Like, that would have been perfect for me, but there's not oh. an opportunity for Ringo to do drums, and I get that. Um, yeah. Very funny to see him looking for his brushes and you know. oh yeah that that didn't work for me I I thought that was kind of like a, a silly little like particularly during those songs I thought that was kind of an unnecessary distraction and I just you know like oh let's throw in a little comedy thing for Ringo I mean I just thought during those songs I just thought that was weird but um, you know like throw in some other comedy thing for Ringo later you know I, that, I thought that was a, just like a really odd time to throw that in I thought that was very you know very weird but just one of so many weird moments yeah. <laughs> just one of many <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean there's, there's so much underappreciated wordplay in in this film then I probably would have ever have guessed I mean it's it's not exactly a Spaniard in the works or anything no. <laughs> but the the reliance on slapstick is 
is cringy. Like when like that guy's getting out the car before the before the interview at the end, like he just drops a bunch of paperwork. It's like, <laughs> you know, here we go. <laughs> well, and did you, you know, Sam? I noticed like, and I didn't pick up on this years ago because I was, you know, not as not as into the Beatles as I, you know, or not didn't study them as closely as later on. But I, I feel like. Paul must have watched Hard Day's Night in Help and saw like some of the, you know, witty repartee and some of that stuff and and like with Norman Shake and, and all that and thought, okay, I'm gonna try to put some of that in. You know, I mean I, I saw some of that and it I mean obviously didn't work nearly as well. But, you know, with some of the uh uh like you know, other periphery characters like you know, like the roadie and stuff like that, and I just remember watching that, thinking, "Oh man, <laughs> you know, he tried." He definitely watched help and took away all the wrong lessons. Exactly. In, in the way that like a lot of young white men watch um, American History X and take the wrong messages away from that film, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, just to summarize my thoughts on the songs. Wings over America. Let's let's just curry nostalgia with yesterday. Um, Lennon loved here, there, and everywhere. Of course, he was going to include that song. Why does he change the opening line though, Kit? Why does he fuck with me? Uh, I need a better life. I need a love of my own. Yeah, work yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, that was really weird. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because yes. That that has bothered me ever since this this came out. Yeah, why did he change that line? And yet he won't change the title of Frozen Japanese. Uh, I'm not even going to call it. The, the, no. Actually, yeah, exactly. I had a bit of fan mail from a guy named Douglas Chen. Shout out to Douglas, and he was and he's a he's a Korean listener, and he was just telling me about how that title has been the bane of his existence his whole life and I've pretty much done a complete 180 I think I was a bit of a, a white British clone just going oh you know I don't think anyone minds being called that word and I'm like oh Paul that's probably the lowest point of your career really. yeah do things like uh, Atlantic Ocean and PS um, and um, Return to Pepperland where he would talk about civil rights and stuff like that and yeah, yeah. It further east, you know, he didn't seem to extend the same kind of care. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, um, yep, really, uh, really, really. Exactly, exactly. Um, then we finally meet Harry in another flashback, um, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Kit, is either a flashback in a dream sequence or a dream in, within a dream. Like, is this in, is this Chris Nolan's Inception we're watching here? <laughs> We've got to go deeper. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to, to echo Ken. You're overthinking this. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting Tom Hardy to show up and go, don't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if Leo DiCaprio could come in and just shoot Harry, that would end this film nice and quickly for yeah, right. um, <laughs> But yeah, that, exactly. That's yet another. Yeah, we're like, it's it gets confusing at times. Yeah, exactly. Is this a dream? Is this what is this? Okay, as we all know, the rule of filmmaking is tell, don't show. Uh, <laughs> oh no, wait, it's show, don't tell. Don't and tell. Un- unfortunately, Paul just tells us 
Paul would hurry a friends, just accept it and move on. You know, it's not natural at all. Um, but Harry does say he's not such a bad boy. Is that meant to inspire Paul within the movie to write that song later? Because bad boy is one of the dream songs. Like, again, yeah, I'm thinking too much. I'm no, I th- no, I thought the same thing. When I watched this again, I, I suddenly, yeah, I, I didn't, well, first time around, I didn't catch that. And when I saw it again, I'm like, wait a minute. Did he, was that, did that inspire him to write that song? What, what, what is that? <laughs> Then, Kit, we move on to the scene of the old bloke asking for an autograph, and he says he doesn't like uh, Paul's music. And I was oh, okay, this could be a good scene if they didn't have a stuffy old fart deliver the line. Yeah. <laughs> saying, oh, you know, only uncool gits don't like my stuff, you know. When, in actuality, it should have been a young punk or a, a, a new wave you know, even Tracy Ullman type character who is asking for a signature for their mum. <laughs> that would be funnier and it would be a reversal of the young girls chasing him into a car from a hard day's night. Mm, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a fucking genius. Like, I'm going to keep coming at you with these suggestions left and right. <laughs> um, no, that should have been a lot funnier. Um. I'd lo- I mean, there's one of my favourite quotes is uh, Fran Marsh talking about the uh, Lord of the Rings screenwriting process. Uh, she's uh, Peter Jackson's wife. Mm-hmm. And she just says she likes to take a red pen to certain scenes from the book. And I'd love to take a red pen to this script. Just no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, that scene could have been a lot funnier. I mean, because the line was funny. It just was, yeah, wrong person to deliver it. Next up, we got a scene with Paul arguing with his manager, and it is laughably bad, Kit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Paul's acting in Pirates of the Caribbean 5 was better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was just a ridiculous, yeah, ridiculous argument. And then and then apparently they they kiss and make up by singing Zippity Doodah. What? Another incredibly problematic uh a reference in this episode from Song of the South. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Every Alabama uh, native's favorite Disney film, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think you can even, I mean, it's probably easier to find a copy of Song of the South, though, than it is to find a copy of Give My Regards to Broad Street. Weird. Yeah, really? Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, it's. Uh, it was just, yeah, I mean, you know, they're supposedly, you know, scream, well, screaming at each other, not exactly, but, I mean, just over whatever, and, I mean, just making no sense, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's time for Paul to, to leave, and then they start singing Zippity-Doo-Dah. I mean, what? What? <laughs> I mean, it just makes no sense. Like, they reference having a bluebird on your shoulder. I was like, oh, is that, is that a band on the run reference? But, like, no, it's just the reference to Zippity Doodah. Right. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, there's just, you know, there's there's no, there, there's just no point to the scene. There's, you know, the argument goes nowhere. I mean, it's it doesn't move the story along. It's, it's yeah, I mean, ridiculous. You know, the conflict between him and his manager in another film that would come to a head at the end of the second act uh, mm-hmm. and, and they'd split up like a, a romantic comedy and then they'd realize they love each other and they'd get back for the third act to find Harry. But yep. again, this is a script written by a man who, according to Denny Lane, smoked two pounds of pot a day. So, <laughs> uh, uh, 
I mean, I can't, I, I can't judge too much. But we do move on to possibly my favourite sequence in the movie. Not the song, just the little 30 seconds of preparing for the ballroom dancing sequence. Because I love films filmed within films. Mm-hmm. within dreams but I love films that show the filmmaking process and just cutting to Paul showing the kids a run through of the song I was charmed I was charmed so much dun, 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 and they're all leaning over they're setting up the cameras all the dancers are practicing their moves love it yeah then Barbara back shows up kit <laughs> yeah th- this this made you know, this made no no sense. I mean, well, obviously they were trying to, you know, set up a little love interest for Ringo, and um, you know, and I forget what what she said. I mean, it was just hysterical. At first, I thought she was just going to be a reporter, you know, but no, she was like supposed to be writing some like it sounded like a dissertation, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, as, as someone who's written one, um, <laughs> um, you know, I'm like, yeah, she would totally be there. I, I mean, it, it just it just cracked me up. Um, and, you know, and, and, it, and Ringo sort of, you know, of course, hitting on her and everything. I mean, it, you know, it was just ridiculous. I mean, I was really laughing. And I think that might be her one of her few lines in the whole movie because I think the rest of the movie she just sits in the background nodding her head to the music. I think that's about it. <laughs> it this movie does not pass the Bechdel test at all. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know. I mean, it's just God. It's a movie produced by Harvey Weinstein and we've got Ringo essentially being a very problematic creeper. Whenever mm-hmm. Bob, whenever, uh, I get it. It's his real life wife. It's an in joke, but he's sexually harassing her and trying to get her to have sex with him to hear a copy of the album. It's not flying in 2020, Kit. It's not yeah. flying. I know. I mean, yeah, he just keeps. Yeah, I mean, practically, you know, she introduces herself and wants to interview him, and he's immediately like, "Oh, why don't you come back to my room?" You know. <laughs> I mean, you know. Like, whoa, 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 the fast there, Ringo. <laughs> uh, he's acting like a caveman, quite ironically. Ah, oh, see what you did there. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> right, let's get on to the, this, arguably the most fun part. Five minutes after we get ballroom dancing. Um, Kit, this is my favorite song off Tug of War. I'm just going to say it. Yep, I, I love it too. That that I love the song. I love the song, um, and I actually like the re. I like this remake. Um, I, I it's another one that I I wouldn't say was entirely necessary, um, but uh, but I actually do like this this remake almost. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to decide if I like it more than the tug of war version, but I do like the extended instrumental break in it. Um, and uh, um, as well. Oh, I'm sorry. There's an extra verse as well. Yeah, the extra verse. I I actually do like this version, um, and uh, I you know I I really have 
sometimes I've actually played this more than the tug of war version. Um, so I, I do like it. The, the sequence itself, I, I, it's another one that I think could have been better. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it had promise. Um, I think part of it, I don't know. I think it goes on a little too long. Uh, maybe that's part of it. Um, I mean, I kind of like the idea of having, you know, the ballroom dancing and then the, the you know, the, the naughty rock and roll kids coming yes. in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it could have been fun. I mean, you know, silly, but but it could have been fun. I, I don't know. I just think the execution wasn't great. Um, I, I just think the um, – and – I can I can defer to you on some of this since you're a film you know you were a film student. I don't know if, if it was the cinematography. Um, I I don't know. I just I thought of the execution was a little amateurish to me. I I don't know. Um, you know you you'll probably have more to say about this than I do. But uh, but it just felt, I just felt like it could have been better. You know, I, it, it, and it should have been better uh, because you had a great song. To, to work with on, on this and a, and a great version and it just seems like it, it should have been more entertaining than it was I don't know, what, what do you think? Uh, Kit, just as an aside how are you doing for time? I'm not oh, I'm fine! No, no, I'm good I'm good So, Kit um, this for me, like just going back to the song I've got, I've got to say the fact that they keep the that's it, kids, and wave the sword. The fact yeah. they kept that on the final soundtrack makes me so happy. I love that. I love the, the, idea, the idea of, okay, dreams within dreams, this reality is fiction. This is one of the key scenes where, like, this, you know, it, this reveals if, how, how someone is approaching this movie because it starts off quite clearly in reality. Um, Paul is the director, but then he's also the lead singer who gets up on stage, like he gets off the camera and then gets on the big revolving stage, and then you've got the ballroom dancers themselves coming in, but then like they're clearly part of the music video at first, but then the greasers come on and it def- descends into this big brawl, and then they end up mobbing the stage, and yeah. it's the first time in the film where I thought, this doesn't make any sense, and I love it. It's <laughs> glorious in its chaos. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a clear example of someone not telling Paul no. Like, Paul, do you want to do Gotta Sing, Gotta Dance Part 2, or do you want to do Grease is the Word? Well, why not both? No, Paul, you can't do both. You've got to pick one and do it right. You know, like, what if Spielberg said, right, I want to do uh, a movie about dinosaurs and the Holocaust. No, no, Spielberg, you've got to do two separate things they're two different ideas they don't work together maybe a little too extreme of an example but it's it's all over the place but yep. the best part kit for me as someone who loves a bit of schadenfreude um <laughs> how expensive is this scene oh my yeah i like i just want to you know those machines you see where people are tallying up their taxis in like classic 90s american things where it's like a one-armed bandit like and that ticket's coming out and they've got a green visor hat on and stuff I'm like how much is this totting up what are paul finances thinking at this time like oh, like, oh yeah earlier did they recoup the cost from this scene I uh, no kidding, and I should add, I love the at the end when Linda punches out one of the dancers on scene that, uh, on the stage. I should say that's great. Great <laughs> in this whole film. Um, I think a she looks fucking fabulous throughout it. Um, yep. 
I've got a thing for a bit of androgyny and short hair, and she looks great dressed as a bloke on stage here, I must yep. admit. Uh, it titillates me in a way that probably my late father wouldn't at all. Just as a little aside here, correct me if I'm wrong, it's actually pretty unique that all the songs featured in this film are in the same order as the track listing on the soundtrack. Yeah, that that's very interesting, and I and you know, quite frankly, I hadn't thought about that for for a while. And then, yeah, when I was looking at the running, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right, they're all in this exact same order, which is uh, kind of uh, unusual for for a soundtrack. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it it's almost like you know, you can read the book along with the film, and you can look at the album, and like you know what's coming next. Especially once he plays for no one, and there's a string quartet in the background. Like, I know what's coming next. You know, <laughs> exactly. Then, as Linda says, let's break for lunch. And yep. I'm sure Paul thought all the hilarious cameos and Star Wars references were, you know, they were oh so fun. They're not. It's it's quite it's like Doctor Who level cringe, you know. Yep. I know there are a lot of Doctor Who fans who listen to this show because there's a weird Venn diagram of Paul McCartney fans and Doctor Who fans for some reason. Uh, I've never I've never understood that. Um, mm-hmm. We even get a little Mary Poppins reference as well. There's a lot of Mary Poppins references in this film, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we get some more cringe between Ringo and Barbara back. Oh. <laughs> and only possible because it's his real life wife. Mm-hmm. Then, 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 then we're introduced to an actress who I, I, I thought was Cindy Lauper at first, if I'm completely honest. Um, <laughs> uh, and I had to check the credits, and they said. Tracy Ullman and as a Brit I was like hang on where have I where have I heard The Simpsons Tracy Ullman is in Give My Regards to Broad Street what the hell is going on and yet it's the same woman if I'm correct Poor Tracy Ullman, I'll tell you. I, I mean, yeah, I found out, of course, years later, and, and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, Tracy Ullman, I mean, here is, the, I mean, she is such a talented, talented person. I mean, she, um, you know, just a, one of those those people that almost has, like, too much talent, you know? I mean, that, that she's kind of, uh, has been hard, you know, she, it's been hard for her to really become a major, major, major star because you know she's one of those people that can play almost any part can take on almost any role to the point where she's like a chameleon you know and so she's never been able to really be a major major star because she's like unrecognizable when she takes on different roles you know and uh you know she's a comedian she's a singer um and in fact the same year that she did broad street she actually had a hit single um uh called they don't know uh which is uh sounds like a it was sort of a throwback to a girl group and paul appeared in her video uh yep it's not what you know kit it's not what you know it's who you know Yep, exactly. And, you know, and I remember watching that video when I was a kid and, um, you know, and not really making the connection, you know, yet. And I, of course, didn't realize that probably Paul was in the video as kind of a thank you, you know, for her appearing in his movie. And so, you know, so, yeah, so that was that was it. And uh, that was her only top 10 hit. Uh, it was a top 10 in America. And I, I assume it was in Britain, too. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and then she went on to have her own show 
show, Tracy Ullman show, and as you said, The Simpsons debuted on it. And, uh, and unfortunately, her show didn't last as long, and The Simpsons went on to become a big, a big hit. But she went on to appear in movies and in TV. So, yeah, this was an early role for her. And poor Tracy, they, it, Paul gave her nothing to do. She so, is so such- she cries, and, and, uh, and she cries. Yes. Uh, she sobs. Yeah. <laughs> She's got I nice mean, earrings, nice clean yeah. earrings. Um. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I mean, when you watch this now, like Paul, you had Tracy Ullman. She's hysterical. She's a, you know, as I said, she's a singer. She's a dancer. She's a comedian, and you just have her cry. I mean, what were you thinking? <laughs> Worst kit. So, in terms of the logic of the story. This should be a potential lead for Paul here. Oh, it's Harry's girlfriend. Okay, maybe there's going to be some drama or tension here. Maybe he's annoyed or a bit inquisitive or concerned. Maybe he thinks she's lying. No, no. <laughs> Have you seen Harry? No. Okay, then in a bit. No worries. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that that really like that almost makes me angriest of all in this movie that that he had Tracy Ullman and and did nothing with her. I mean that was just yeah, that's incredible. But uh but yeah, so so she you know, she they come back to her occasionally crying and and uh yeah. Uh, next, we move on to a scene that I didn't know whether it was a dream or reality again. At the 36 minute mark, we get silly love songs. Kit I detest the production on this one. Um, the main selling point of the original is that flawless 1970s McCartney production, and mm-hmm. here they turn this annoyingly crisp, dry, and lifeless rendition of the song. Uh, also, if you get a good Linda McCartney vocal, do not risk it by recording another one. What are you doing? <laughs> okay, now I have to defend one aspect of this re-recording, though, um, it, which is um, the bass player uh, in this, who has that slap bass solo toward the end. Um, that is Lewis Johnson. And I actually write about him in my other book, and okay, cheap plug is coming, um, <laughs> which is uh, my book, Michael Jackson FAQ, uh, All That's Left to Know About the King of Pop. I actually write about this gentleman uh, in my book. Uh, Lewis Johnson was like one of the top, and, and by the way, on many of these songs that Paul re recorded for Broad Street, I mean, boy, he recruited the top session musicians of the day. I mean, the top players. I mean, you know, Steve Lukather, Jeff Picaro. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Lewis Johnson was one of these guys. Um, and he was uh, known uh, for being part of the Brothers Johnson. Uh, they had a hit back in the, uh, I guess, like 80, 81, something around there called Stomp. But he was also known as... Everybody take it to the top, we're going to yes. stomp. That's it. That's him. Oh, my God. That's him. I love that song. That's great. Yep, that's right. Well, he, in addition to that, uh, he was also, as I said, one of the top bass players of the day and is still considered one of, like, the, the best slap bass players ever. And he played extensively on two of Michael's albums, Off the Wall and uh, Thriller. He played the bass line on Billy Jean. Um, you know, he is just, he was incredible. He died about five years ago unfortunately well that solo and you see him playing it you wouldn't know it because of a hideous makeup they're all wearing in that scene uh, but that's him playing that 
cool bass uh, solo in that. Uh, so, so I'll defend him. He's great <laughs> in that. I like that solo. <laughs> but, but otherwise, but otherwise, that's that scene. I I think that scene is creepy as hell. <laughs> Is it just me, or is it a production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats? Yes. <laughs> I mean, what were they thinking? A jellical pool for a jellical ball, you know? Oh. I mean, I think Steve Steve Lukather, who, by the way, uh, wrote my introduction to Michael Jackson FAQ. He wrote the introduction to it, so he's a he's a great guy too. So, uh, but anyway, yeah. Can you imagine how all of them must have felt having to wear that hideous makeup in that scene? Good God! Oh, I mean, production still photo for the back of the album as well, so there's no escaping it. Yeah, exactly. So they had to wear these hideous, and then the break dancer and the moonwalker. Right. Let me let me address this right. So we've got a group of the whitest people on film ever, right? Yeah. And, and then we have an African-American dancer all dressed in black. Mm-hmm. doing a facsimile of like, I don't mean to be offensive here, but it really reminded me of like a black and white minstrel show. I know he didn't intend to, but anyone who's seen yeah. solo video for Ebony and Ivory, which has the exact same premise, which is Paul at the piano with an African-American dancer. And again, 2020... I'm not saying it's offensive, it's just a little problematic. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so awkward. I mean, and again, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's Paul trying to be contemporary and hip and relevant, and it doesn't work. I mean, it's just to say the least. I mean, it's it, it just it's just so awkward, and and it's you know, and it just ruins a great song. You know, he didn't need it. You know, I mean, why didn't he just have the band performing it? You know. Normally, I mean, it's, you know, you got the great horn section. Um, and again, I mean, you know, great band, as I said, top players of the day. Why didn't he just have them do it? You know, normally, regular performance video, that would have been fine. But no. <laughs> I think the breakdance was meant to be Michael Jackson in an early draft. I mean, who knows? Well, the moonwalking part, I just thought, okay. You know, this was 1984, height of of Michael Jackson mania. I mean, you know, this was clearly a nod to, you know, I mean, maybe not, maybe not him exactly like, you know, specifically, but certainly that period. And, uh, you know, so I think it, it definitely was trying to, you know, kind of a nod to his young, you know, to his fans, younger people in general. And I just, I was like, oh, <laughs> I mean. Come get Tito or Latoya instead, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just so cringy. And that part where, um, and it's actually during Lewis Johnson's bass solo, which makes it even worse, <laughs> that. I mean, it's just even worse when he does that. That guy start the the dancer starts going woo, and then does that weird like flip, where they even have a little sound effect, and his and his shoes sort of turn like like a you know start glowing and everything. I, oh, I it, it is the worst sound effect in a Paul McCartney project since the kiss sound in Listen to What the Man Said. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just the whole thing. I mean, I I think they thought that was cool, and 
it, it so isn't. It, it's, it, it just comes off. I mean, I, I'm, and I'm sorry, listeners. I love Paul. We all love Paul. But that was just pathetic. I mean, it's it just a pathetic attempt to, to be cool and contemporary and hip. And it was just the opposite. We get another shot of Tracy Ullman crying after this. Uh, get Poor Tracy. We run into a scene from an actual film, which is the scene of Harry running with the tapes in hand. It's a dream within a dream in a dream, um, but you know it's actually got a little bit of tension in it. But of course, tension in this film is only fleeting, and it ends after about ten seconds or something like that. Um, I kind of wish that this may have been the opening scene, uh, and I feel like it might have been shot that way, and then it was moved around in the edits because. I mean, there are so many scenes we should have had at the start. A scene to establish Paul and Harry as friends at the start. A scene of Harry stealing the tapes would have been nice. I mean, in any other film. Uh, I don't ask that much, Kit. I really, I really don't. I just want logical progression in my narrative. Um, then we have to the warehouse, which I actually quite have a little bit of affection for this set. It's a part of dirty old London that really doesn't exist anymore. Um, rather like Broad Street Station itself, actually. And those tall, dark buildings with the kind of terrifying alleyways is a distinct uh, Mary Poppins slash Oliver vibe. Mm. Kit, just as a little aside, what's your favourite musical? Oh, my favourite musical, probably, uh, well, movie musical, Singing in the Rain. Oh, fantastic, yeah. Yes, yeah, perfect. Uh, well, oh, I... What's, what's that line where she's trying to get rid of her New York accent? I can't, I can't remember now. It's going to bug me. Ah, uh, oh, no. You know, she's like, I can't stand him. That one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yep. I, oh, I love that. I love that. That uh, I can't remember her name now. It was Lena, I think. It was, she's hilarious. Anyone who says Gene Kelly is the best male dancer in that movie can sod right off as well. Oh. The guy who sings "Make Him Laugh," he's Jesus. Christ. Donald o, uh, Donald O'Connor. That "Make Him Laugh" scene, I mean, incredible. Dignity, Kit. Always dignity. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're in the Dockside Warehouse, and at the 48-minute mark, we get "Not Such a Bad Boy." Um, this is our first original song. Um, Kit, how does the song compare to the rest of the soundtrack for you? Well, I mean, I, you know, it's it's not uh, my all-time favorite Paul song, for sure. Um, but uh, but I actually I I find this song gets stuck in my head. Um, it's um, I I really uh, think it's uh, it's catchy in its own way. It's got a, a catchy chorus. Um, I also like that it's um, definitely harder rocking than than what we've heard, and and um, you know for the first time um, shows a little um, maybe a little life um, certainly when he plays the song in the movie um, he, he seems to uh, have a little more energy and certainly with the band uh, he does I mean I I um, and he, I think in, in a way he sounds more contemporary doing this um, you know that uh, this sounds even um, I, I don't know if 
you know, this might overstate a bit, but particularly the first, the opening chords, I mean, even sound a little um, uh, new wave punkish in a way, but, uh, but then as the song progresses, it's more of a, just a straightforward rocker. But in other words, you know, this is the first time that he sounded in any way contemporary uh, to me. I mean, you know, forget the break dancing and all that stuff. I mean, this is, this is finally a time where he sounds like he's, doing something, you know, that sounds, sounds like it's of the time. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, um, as I said, doesn't rank among my all time favorite McCartney songs, but, um, but it's got, as I said, I like the, the, the you know, the chorus kind of sticks in your head. Uh, it's got a good kind of rockin' McCartney vocal, you know. It's uh, got that raspiness to it. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, this is really the only original song from the soundtrack that I like um, that uh, that I think is, is kind of, you know, as I said, it's fun. Uh, it's fun, but I wouldn't rank him among his best. But, uh, but definitely... You know, finally some energy here. I've actually cheated. I've brought two. Oh, well, there you go. Well, you need that many to get through this movie. <laughs> uh, you know, whenever whenever I talk to someone from the colonies, as I call it, you know, I just get a, a, yearn, a yearning to, to get some alcohol in me. It just reminds me of losing all that land. That was one. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> it's, it's our job to kill indigenous peoples, not that's, that's right. <laughs> that's not making the final fucking edit, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I wouldn't leave that in. <laughs> no, um, I mean, I could make a reference to Jelaine Maxwell being arrested today by the FBI, but I won't, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a long time coming, thank God. No, he... <laughs> He clearly committed suicide in jail, Kit. He clearly did. There's nothing. Yes. I mean, just the fact that he was... I mean, Kit, you know the giant bloke in Give My Regards to Broad Street? That was pretty yep. much Jeff- Jeffrey Epstein's prison, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that giant man, yeah. Yeah, really? <laughs> yep, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, when he saw that was going to be his roommate, I uh, I think that that was it. <laughs> he was a bad boy. Yes, he was. He no was. more. No more. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, he cracked me up. <laughs> the best thing a guest on my show can do is laugh at my jokes. Yep. <laughs> uh, I will cut into my review of Not Such a Bad Boy now. Three, two. Honestly, Kit, I think this is a complete throwaway. But in the good kind. This is one of my favourite kind of McCartney throwaways where it's it gets you from point A to point B and you've got a smile at the end of it. I really wish we kind of got more of this in a full studio album. I mean, you know, we, we, we kind of get that heavier sound in the original sessions or press to play before, uh, you know, Padgham came and did his work. And I'm glad that we don't get an overly glossy, shiny track that goes a bit too close to the middle of the road. But usually as well, Paul and the gang and their whole wardrobe, Linda's Trilby, they all look great. Paul in a leather jacket. It's always a win. It's always a win. <laughs> Absolutely. And I and I think that's a, a great way you phrase it, the you know, throwaway track. Yeah, it's just fun. You know, it's it's not 
not, I, as I said, don't rank him among his best, um, but it's just, you know, as I said, just a great rocker. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, not, not going to rank among his top ten, but it's, uh, it's just a fun, fun track. From one song with bad in the title to the next, at the 51-minute mark, we get so bad. Um, <laughs> this is a great song. Uh, it, it is cheesy. It is saccharine. It is sentimental. It is lovey-dovey to the max. And I love it. It is, it is so fun to sing along with my tone-deaf uh, falsetto voice. There is a pain. <laughs> Inside my heart. I, I, I can't help but sing along to it. Um, I don't know what it is, but I kind of think this might be slightly better than the original Pubs Pizza original. The vocal's a little more delicate, uh, tuned this time around. Um, and it breaks my heart that it didn't make it onto the soundtrack and little 12-year-old Kit didn't get to hear this in her formative year. <laughs> no, I didn't get to hear this this version um, on the album. I I didn't, but I'm I'm afraid I'm I'm gonna have to disagree with you that I like the Pipes of Peace version better. I've always loved this song, um, but first of all, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. I love this song. Um, I I have been a defender of this track. This is one of the songs that you know when we talked earlier about how much you know I've I've defended Pipes of Peace and and. Uh, Yep, from the first moment I heard this song, I've always loved it, and um, you know, I, I agree. It, I just think the harmonies are beautiful. Um, as you said, it's just a sweet love song, and you know, it, sure, it might be cheesy and over sentimental. So what? It's a great. It's just a great, um, you know, classic McCartney pop song, and. And uh, as he sings, what's wrong with that? Um, and I, I just have uh, always loved it. Um, I don't know. I, I guess there's just something about I like his vocal a little better um, on uh, the Pipes of Peace version. I don't know what it is. Um, but I, on the other hand, I'm really glad, though, that he redid the song um, on Broad Street in that it brought more attention to to this uh, track because I've always thought, you know, it deserved more attention than it got. And I remember, you know, when this song came out as a single uh, back when I was uh, when I was a kid and the, and the video, which I still think is charming, by the way, it's, you know, of course you can see it on YouTube or any, and, uh, you know, I've always loved the video to it too. So while I prefer the Pipes of Peace version, I'm, I'm glad he brought it back for Broad Street because it, it got the song even more attention. So I'm really glad to hear you like the song too, because as I said, a lot of people just thought it was always oh, fluff, and you know, I love it. You've just mentioned what's wrong with that. Like some people automatically assume that Paul has no metatextual self-awareness to him. Maybe he was very fully aware that he was writing something in the vein of silly love songs, but not because like silly love songs is a protest song. In mm-hmm. like, you know, hey, I'll write whatever the hell I want to, and so bad is just. I write love songs, probably love love songs about love, you know, and great. Come on. Like anyone who doesn't love Paul at the hot, you know, at the extreme, you know, we've just had him at his most rocky that he can summon. And now we're at, at him at his softest. That's a nice little contrast. Exactly. 
Then, Kit, we have to talk about the song that hits us at the 54-minute mark, which is No Values! Uh, our, our second original track. Please tell me, Kit, that you have enough values to write off No Values. <laughs> Yeah, this the, no values just has never done it for me. Um, it's it's okay. Um, I don't hate it, but um, I don't know. I I just it, you know I, it just does never stuck with me. Um, like you know, because as I said, uh, not such a bad boy. At least that has a, a catchiness to it that stays with you. And yeah, just. Yeah, just yelling, no values. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it just has never really resonated with me. And I mean, it's fine. Um, I, I don't hate it, but it's just not, a, to me, a very memorable track. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's fun in the movie to see Paul and the band kind of jamming on it. I mean, that's fine. But other than that, eh, I, I just think, you know, that could have been a, they if let's just put it this way, uh, they could have left that off the soundtrack, and and I would have been okay with that. <laughs> let's put it that way. So bad should have been on the soundtrack, and yeah, yeah, I would have been fine with that on the soundtrack rather than no values. Completely contrasting my feelings on not such a bad boy. This is entirely the worst kind of throwaway. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I read somewhere that McCartney had a little bit of a yesterday situation with this song where it kind of came to him in a dream and this whole film is one big dream sequence the only conclusion I can draw is and I've done some research of this too much marijuana consumption stops REM sleep which stops your dreams and mm-hmm. that's the only conclusion I can draw that you know his dreams are so boring at this point because he's just too damn stoned uh, <laughs> I, also, I also read that he felt like this song was akin to a Rolling Stones tune but fuck me Paul wishes this song <laughs> half as good as the Rolling Stones still sounded in 84. I mean, this is just a year after Undercover of Darkness, which is an incredible single. Um, yeah. Eight Fathers, favourite song, so maybe that triggered me a little bit. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. We do get a little reference to the Artful Dodger in this song, though, which is another Oliver Twist reference. It's how many Oliver Twist references are we going to bloody get in this film? but more on that later. <laughs> During that song as well, we're also introduced to what I can only describe Kit as the biggest man I have ever seen. <laughs> like, people, you may have watched Game of Thrones and seen the mountain that rides. This is this is Mount Everest that rides. This man is a ginormous fellow, and I'm not just talking about girth. He is height, width, breadth. His hand is bigger than Paul McCartney's head. <laughs> it's insane um, But the, that, that shot of him walking menacingly towards the camera Would have been effective If it hadn't been like 35 seconds long Like you're begging for him to reach the end of his destination By the time you, you actually you know, introduce him in that shot Paul imagines Harry selling the tapes to this dodgy looking kind of chap And he speaks to him Reveals he too hasn't seen Harry So once again Chip we have no drama Yep Again, that's another daydream sequence. Like, why is there no Ferris Bueller's Day Off moment where someone says, "Hey, Paul, stop daydreaming"? Yeah, exactly. It would make so much sense. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, he spends so much of his time daydreaming, he doesn't get anything done. (laughs) Not only that, his company is on the line 
and he still goes about with his daily schedule. And and that doesn't seem to care that much. Paul, Paul, you, you can put no values to one side for a minute. Like, maybe, like, look for the tapes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can skip no values. I mean, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just get the Paul McCartney fan club. Get Club Sandwich to go out and look for it, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Not gonna lie, we're over an hour into in, into this film kit, and we're still debating whether Harry stole the tapes or not. Yeah, this isn't an unresolved plot thread. This is a plot thread that is actively trying to piss me off. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies where it's it's like you're you know and you're like what is what is this about again? <laughs> like people talk about being bored, and like there's that awful anecdote of Roger Ebert having to tell Paul that this was a bad film and I'm like because oh. if I met Paul right now Kit do you know what I'd say I love it I love it Paul yeah. it's amazing <laughs> oh you're so pretty you know I'd, I'd, I'd just I'd be such a sycophant I would I know me too I wouldn't have the nerve speaking of sycophants we, uh, Paul goes to an interview um, and the interviewer reminds me of myself in a way, um, in in the way that he, they, the moment they click pause, he goes, God, that's a piece of shit. Like, I love that. It was like, oh, yeah, loved it. Um, but Kit, I mean, I know I might be a little bit young and wet behind the ears. Uh, how many radio broadcasts back in 84 had a live string quartet ready at the drop of a hat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was awfully convenient, wasn't it? <laughs> Again, maybe spend the money paying off Rathbone, finding the tapes, whatever. Of course not. Um, No. One hour and nine minutes in, we get For No One, uh, which, a.k.a. for me, is the best song on Revolver. Um, Mm. Terrible remake. Pointless Mm. remake. It's like he's running through it for... Like against his will, almost, and it's like yeah, chosen to do this. And I feel about this one the way you may have felt about Good Day Sunshine. Yeah, I, I you know, not. Oh, oops. Okay, do you hear me? Okay, and we're still recording. We're all good. Oh, oh, do you hear me? Still hear you. Okay, my that was weird. My uh, my my. Uh, Headset went out for a second. Okay, it's back. So anyway, sorry about that. So uh, okay, back to for no one. All right. Okay, sorry about that. I don't know why that happened. Uh, okay, for no one. Um, yeah, his um, yeah his vocals are just yeah as you said he just sounds like he's just kind of going through the motions, and um, which is so strange. I don't know why. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you can skip this version. I mean, the original is, is so far superior. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know why, because I agree. It's one of my favorites too. I think it's one of his finest compositions and, um, yeah, to, to run through it with such little, I mean, I don't know if energy is the right, um, uh, you know, the right term to use. This is not quite energy, but just, yeah, just no feeling, um, to it. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is one version (laughs) that, that you could definitely skip. And it's just so odd that, that he would, you know, 
sing it in such a, you know, impassionate kind of, you know, indifferent kind of way. I mean, it's, it's just so strange. Um, and, um, yeah, this, this was one remake I, I don't think he should have bothered doing. Where's the piano kit? Where's the piano? Where's Wallace string? Yeah. You know, uh, like, I can remember back when I was in year eight, so that would be like the 10th grade or ninth grade in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was probably about 14, 15 Sure. And I just had a major breakup, my first major breakup. And mm. one of my friends, Matt O'Connor, who to this day is about 10 foot three. Uh, he's the tallest guy I've ever met. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, he just had a breakup as well with a girl who's about two foot two. Uh, <laughs> they were a great couple. They were a great couple. Um, and we were both depressed at a party. We were both getting through a bottle of JB or Jameson's. It was, it was, it was definitely a green whiskey bottle, I remember. And ah so upset and I was a bit dejected and I put on for no one and just cut to these two mid-teens just crying their eyes out oh <laughs> <laughs> why doesn't she love me man why doesn't she love me oh <laughs> But yeah, that's what it's supposed to, you know. I mean, that's that's what it's supposed to elicit. I mean, that's that's it. I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly sad song. And then yeah, he just sits there like your day breaks, uh, your mind aches. Uh. But yeah, like why doesn't he? It's like he's looking at his watch. <laughs> Got a joint with my name on it. Come on, can we wrap up the film? <laughs> California Kush waiting for me. And um, <laughs> at the one hour and 12 minute mark, we get Eleanor Rigby and Eleanor's Dream. Mm. I had read so much about this infamous Eleanor's Dream sequence. Yeah. Um, dream sequence, do you get it? Um, and Got it. <laughs> hey, <what> I did <laughs> and um, this is a dream. Everyone seems to flag it off. Everyone seems to it. And... Okay, well, just okay. Let, let, let me address the music. Mm-hmm. A sequel to Eleanor Rigby on paper should not work, mm-hmm. and yet the remake is incredibly competent. It doesn't have the same immediacy um, or spectacle of the original. Like the, 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 I swear the the mix in Yellow Submarine is different. Beatles say otherwise. I swear it's a slightly different mix. But the remake we get here is solid. And they develop and expand on the idea of Eleanor Rigby in a way that I was not expecting. And I'd heard the whole Eleanor's dream sequence before I'd seen the film. And in the way that, you know, you get a real kick out of seeing Lennon saying, Queen says no to Spotsburg FBI agents in the Let It Be documentary, you know, seeing that visual link up to the visuals. That was magical for me. Mm-hmm. It is. It's. It really. Um, yeah. The 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 score and everything does work amazingly well. I mean, you you don't. And you agree, it shouldn't work, right? I mean, it shouldn't work on paper. But uh, but it's it's beautiful. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's uh, George Martin, of course. I mean, just just 
scores it beautifully, um, and it, it it really does follow the the uh, story of the song very well. Uh, I mean, the mood of the song, the storyline. Um, uh, I mean, they really took. I mean, not that I thought they would just knock this out in two minutes, but I mean, they really took great care in in crafting the the song to really go along with the mood the the storyline the you know it it just it, it is it's a it's it's surprisingly effective um and uh and so yeah i mean the remake is is good in itself but then to you know carry it into the the dream sequence and the the score yeah i agree it's 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 uh it's Really, and listening to it again, um, you know, preparation for the show, I'd forgotten how, you know, truly, you know, intricate and and lovely uh, it really is. I did want to point out that there's at least one part that I feel like is a direct homage to The Right of Spring by Stravinsky, that kind of... Anyone who knows Fantasia and the bit with the dinosaurs... Uh, mm-hmm. That is the right of spring, and that really runs that. And when Harry is stabbed by Rathbone, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> uh, that has echoes of Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho, which is a death yes. illusion. It has to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that is true. I, I'd forgotten that part. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and of course that that makes sense because that was an inspiration uh, in the score for the original Eleanor Rigby, as as I recall. I think uh, George Martin's t- uh, talked about that in previous interviews. So yeah, I mean it was a, a, a amazingly effective um, score, and um, you know really as I said, built upon the storyline of of the you know of the lyrics so um so yeah that was definitely a highlight um of of the soundtrack absolutely we've got about 20 minutes to talk about the visuals here now because a lot to get through yes indeed a cold-hearted overly negative millennial contrarian cynic like myself kim had his heart melted the elvis dream sequence uh, mm-hmm. again i'd heard loads about it and I was like, I don't know what these people saw, because this to me is just a visual representation of things like Wonderful Christmas Time, Alec Entire, and So Bad, that kind of silly Paul doing his thing. And it's, you know, it's like, you, you know when he like made Walking Through the Park with Eloise, and like, oh, I don't like it. Paul's dad would have loved this scene. The mm-hmm. So dapper with his little whiskers and Ringo's rocking some amazing outfits as well as our, uh, um, it's another great it's got a, an out of touch ridiculous innocence that I, I cannot help but hope is the back of the Rolls Royce stuff mm-hmm. like, okay if Paul's going to be a toff why not make fun of it you know <laughs> Even in the dream sequence, Paul has someone carrying his stuff around for him. You know, oh, he has the help. It's true. And then, you know, we get a waterfall sequence because, of course, there's a waterfall. Of course. Uh, not a reference to the song Waterfall, sadly. Like, couldn't they have hired a polar bear? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and watching Linda, app scared. That was a delight. 
they'll just <laughs> like it because it's it's the worst bit of acting since Barbara back. It, oh my god! <laughs> hey, Linda, you're a photographer, right? Yes. So I'm going to make you be a keyboard player and an actress. Oh. <laughs> Just let her do her cookbook with too much cream in it, please. Uh. Then we, uh, we cut to a winter wonderland. That was a great one-off visual as like a, a transition between the the tough stuff. And then we moved to a Victorian street, aka the Warner Brothers backlot set. Um, <laughs> and again, we have a lot more allusions to Oliver. Uh, not Oliver Twist the book, literally the David Lean film Oliver, which Kit to me is my favourite musical of all time. Uh, mm. You ask me to sing any song from that movie, I will do it note for well, not note, no, but I'll do it word for word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, one of my favourite songs from the Oliver play is Bill Sykes' song that is actually cut from the film. Uh, it's called My Name, and it's just him talking about how he loves murdering people and stuff, and. I was always upset that that never was shown. But we do get a little facsimile of Bill Sykes in this, complete with a barking dog, and I felt there was wonderful shades of Oliver Reed here, but he's Mm -hmm. played by the big man from the warehouse sequence, and then Harry gets stabbed by Rathbone, and I was like, wow, that's violent for a Paul McCartney movie. Wow. It was a murder. (laughs) There's no blood. No. But the actor playing Harry, he's going for the Oscar with his dying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Like stumbling and falling over. Um, but this whole sequence kit to me is a highlight of one of the main problems of the film. Paul mm-hmm. just watches stuff happening. He is passive as hell. He is not a player in his own story. To quote John Lennon about help, we weren't even the main characters in our own film. Paul is the main character in his own film. He doesn't do anything. (laughs) Hey, Harry, go save him. It's your dream. (laughs) It's your dream, Paul. It's your script. You don't have to... Like, have you ever heard of lucid dreaming? (laughs) That's true. I mean, even when... Well, though, I guess I don't know. Well, I guess he could have tried something but yeah when uh, Ringo and and uh, Barbara and Linda are going you know are, are going over the waterfall and all, yeah he just stands there and they're, they're all like help 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 and he's, yeah, he's just standing there <laughs> like, like can't you grab a boat and go in there or swim or something yeah no he just stands there you <laughs> know <laughs> I mean, oh. I'd pay good money to see Barbara back be hit by an oar in the face, like a javelin. Yep. I think that'd be a very good scene. Oh, um, shit. But I, <laughs> like, it's really, like, graphically violent. Like, it's completely inappropriate. Like, oh, oh, no. Oh, my oh. God. Barbara, hold your nose up. Hold your nose up, love. Uh, oh, oh, man. But I I did love the uh, the picnic part. I was like, I'd love to be at that picnic. That looks really yes. That looked fabulous, didn't it? I there must be a paid experience wherever that was shot. You know, the give my regards to Broad Street experience. Yeah. Like I would do that. Then come over to England, kid, and we'll go on the uh, go row a boat over a waterfall, you know? <laughs> well, we, we 
could skip that part. <laughs> the picnic, I'm I'm down, but uh, but you know, we could skip the waterfall and the stabbing. <laughs> the fall and the stabbing is like the name of my autobiography. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Then, after this dream sequence, Paul suddenly decides to become an active agent in his own bloody movie. Yeah, uh, finally. Again, uh, this should be the part where Gandalf gives Frodo the ring after 30 minutes and the adventure begins. But then you look at the clock, you're like, I've got like 10 minutes left. Okay, let's, let's see what happens here. Uh, and for some reason, Kit, we get the studio album version at 1 hour 25 of Band on the Run. Yeah. <laughs> which doesn't appear on the soundtrack and wasn't remade. But apparently it was remade, but there has been no release of it at all. Apparently it had Ringo on drums as well. Mm-hmm. And my favourite thing to type in on YouTube or Vimeo is Paul McCartney Sessions and just seeing what comes up. Because I mean, I mean, I am I am knee deep in the Phil Ramone sessions. I'm loving me some Big Day and Atlantic Ocean. And ah, not a uh, and a Return to Pepperland. Like all of that is well up my alley because again, it's obscure and contrarian. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul's driving through in his imaginary speedster car again. I'm glad that that got another little. Uh, like T-Rex at, at, at the end of Jurassic Park give the audience, <laughs> what, give the audience what they want there Paul you know uh, <laughs> then he goes to a pub that Harry was last seen at and he chats to the landlord who in any other script would be like the wise old sage type who would actually give Paul useful advice but he just has a pet monkey and tells him about how poets don't always appear as they look uh, yeah, that was the strangest scene. I mean, yeah, there was. That's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for the man uh, Ralph Richardson, a uh, 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 famous British actor, who apparently this was one of his final films. I think, in fact, I think he died not long uh, before the movie came out. And um, he, yeah, we all, we all know he saw the film, and you know, he took yeah, things in his own hands. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and yeah, and, and he just, yeah, you're waiting for him to give Paul sage advice, right? You know, where to find Harry or, or he's going to say something where Paul is going to suddenly like a light bulb will go out, you know, on over his head. No, he, he just says a bunch of, you know, th- things that, you know, just a lot of, uh, oh, I don't know, abstract. Kind. Of, I mean, they just they just sort of talk around each other, and uh, and yeah, and he gives his pet monkey a little you know little teacup and everything, and then Paul leaves. That's it. <laughs> the fact that I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Obviously, I don't want to be like Paul. There's so many dream sequences in a podcast, but <laughs> in like ten minutes, in like two minutes, we're going to see Paul go. Oh yeah, Broad Street Station. So why didn't the the old landlord say, "Oh, Harry left singing. Give my regards to to Broadway." Like if he had just said that, it would make sense. Yeah. Why Paul would go? Oh, he's he's at, he's at Broad Street Station, but no, uh, no. He just he he just leaves after of oh, Kit. This film does not do anything for the stereotype that British people drink tea. Um, <laughs> drink tea. They're at a pub. Have a point. For, 
I mean, obviously, Paul can't drink and drive, but, you know. And and you all keep pet monkeys, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, hang on. Down, boy, down. No, sorry. <laughs> Ace Ventura in here, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> oh, what I did notice, though, and it's the only fun reference that I really would... Oh, I like that. Um, the chime on the landlord's clock are the opening notes from Let Em In. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, so that was... Okay, that was cute. And I'm like, Kit, were you expecting two references to Wings at the Speed of Sound? <laughs> Abbey Road, nothing from Ram, nothing from Rubber Soul, like, but we the speed of sound. Like, I was half expecting him to do a remake of The Note You Never Wrote. <laughs> well, better than no values. <laughs> Come on. I mean, I would love to hear Paul on lead vocal for something like Wino Junko when he's Oh, man. At the one hour and 30 minute mark, we get the long and winding road. Fuck the saxophone. Oh, my God. I hate this kit. I never used the H word. I, ha- I hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. And uh, <laughs> I'm the only person on earth who prefers Lennon's bad bass line than Herbie Flowers' new bass line. Like, like I love Thrillington. Great bass on it, but... Lennon does a better job here. Um, Mm -hmm. And hey, Paul, you did a worse job than Phil Spector. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that that was really funny that, you know, that, you know, Paul, of course, was saying how much he hated, you know, Phil Spector's, uh, you know, uh, production work on that and the singers and all. And so what does Paul do? (laughs) The saxophone. And it's the eighties. It's the eighties bingo card again, isn't it? So yeah, take that off. Yep, exactly. So I mean, yeah, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, that he then did that stuff to uh, to it. So yeah, it's it's funny. And yeah, my favorite um, in that scene where he's driving around is you know when he's driving down the the tawdry street where the hookers are and everything. Yeah. And that's I, I love that part. No, but um, hookers try and solicit him in the um, in the Victorian Eleanor's dream sequence as well. Yeah. <laughs> What's Linda thinking about all this? Because um, for anyone who likes the behind the scenes, one of Paul's ex girlfriends visited him on set as well. And oh my god! Like what, Paul? Like put it in your pants, man! Like Ringo's a sex pest. You're being approached by hookers. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think he should have retitled re- uh, this film Paul's Midlife Crisis. I think that should have been. <laughs> it would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yeah, with the car and everything. Yeah, for sure. We cut to Tracy Ullman crying in bed. Do you remember her? Yep. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? Cindy Lauper's in this. I forgot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Girls do not have fun. No, not in this movie. <laughs> so, like I mentioned, without any prompt or motivation to do so, Paul just goes, oh, yeah, Harry's on his way to Broad Street Station. Again, would have been nice to have had that scene earlier, but no. 
Okay. Well, he, no, he remembers, which is also bizarre, that uh, when, uh, I guess, they gave Harry the tapes, that they bizarrely sang him off by singing Give My Regards to Broad Street, I guess. Because I guess he, oh, he said to them, well, I'm off to Broad Street Station. And a bunch of them saying, oh, give my regards to Broad Street. And then he says, then, Paul, the light bulb goes off. So, yeah, so that's that was his epiphany. <laughs> Why he didn't think of this before? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not about gentrification, but when Paul walked around Broad Street Station, it looks like New York in the 80s. Like, it yeah. looks like Times Square. Again, another reference to a Wacky Phoenix's Joker here, but, you know, it looks it looks like the worst station ever. I'm like, I'm glad they tore this piece of shit station down. It looks <laughs> awful and depressing and run down. <laughs> Great name for your movie, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I I was last in in um, London in 2000. I I was there 2000, and, and I'd love to go back. I'm hoping to go back sometime. Um, and I'm like, I don't remember seeing a station like that. <laughs> like the tourist board must have had a fit when they saw that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Wow. And while he's walking around at the one hour, 35 minute mark, we get no more lonely nights. <laughs> uh, uh, this is our final original song on the soundtrack. And of course, it was the main single. Uh, it's a power battle. They got to number two here in England and Ireland and only number six over there in the States. But as we mentioned earlier, number six was a hit back then. Yes. Uh, I mean, a lot of radio play, I take it lot of radio play and i do as i said i remember seeing the video i i have the 45 of it i mean it it got a lot of play and uh and it was uh i i love that song i still do uh that david gilmore uh, uh guitar solo um i i just uh thought it was one well certainly one of his finest 80s singles that's for sure um and um i i still enjoy that song um and uh and it was even as a 12 year old kid um i i gravitated toward that song even even though i you know wasn't a full Beatle fan yet um it just uh, i thought his vocals were were really strong on that um and uh and i loved the you know explosive still do the explosive chorus um and um you know george martin uh, I thought excellent production work on that. Um, just a really strong song. I've always liked it. I've got to be honest, Kit. I don't like this song. <laughs> That's okay. Well, and part of it for me is also kind of sentimental because I absolutely remember, you know, buying the single and, you know, so some of it's sentimental for me. I actually think that the solo in No Values is better than this one. And I love David Gilmore. I think David mm-hmm. Gilmore on paper is probably the most successful collaborator of all in the 80s. In yeah. Hit ratio. Um, my best friend Danny, who designed the thumbnail for this podcast, this is his favorite Paul McCartney song. He listens to Heart FM, which is the 80s station here in the UK. Mm-hmm. I don't like power ballads at the best of times. And, you know... This is not my kind of McCartney. I don't like Once Upon a Longer Go from this era either. 
this mm-hmm. kind of middle of the road Maca rubs me the wrong way. And mm-hmm. I just kind of think, look, Paul, just go back to making weird McCartney 2 esque shit, you know? Just go back to the weird. <laughs> stop, trying to, stop trying to make money and appeal to everyone. Be niche and unpopular so that I can like you legitimately. He's not giving me what I want, Kit. He's not giving me what I want. He's, oh, no. He's being too damn good. But it's <laughs> just not what I consider to be that moving. Um, then we actually get to the scene that everyone and their mum talks about. We're saying what their favourite scene from this film is. Oh, my God, Sam. The best scene's Paul Busking. Oh, my God. Everyone on my uh, Twitter was going mental over this scene. Um, I mean, maybe this was the inspiration for Move Over Busker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> get a little shot of Paul doing a little skiffle version of Yesterday. And i got to admit, it's pretty fun. I wish it had been incorporated more throughout the film. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's funny. Uh, it, it is funny. Yeah, I agree. It should have been more than 10 seconds. I mean, yeah, if that had been kind of a running joke through the film or something, you know, that that... That could have been funnier. That's true. Yeah, to just kind of shoehorn it in at the last second for no apparent reason. Yes, as well. Yeah. I mean, any fans of Alan Moore's Watchmen will be aware of the character of Rorschach, uh, Walter Kovacs, and he's a homeless man who you see throughout the narrative and uh, getting a little bit of inspiration from that. Uh, there should have been a homeless character who pulled constantly saw throughout the film and it's just a guy who looks like him you know in the way that if you go back in time and visit your great great grandfather he looks exactly like you and he's played by the same actor it should, mm-hmm. have, it should have just been like that you know yeah someone who Paul meets on the street I mean if he, if he was alive he'd probably have been living yep yeah, exactly. Yeah, that could have been yeah more entertaining. But yeah, just to kind of, as I said, sort of shoehorn it in at the last minute. That yeah, that was kind of weird. But that could have been a funny you know running gag or something. But uh, but you know, as with everything in the movie, no, <laughs> no, they didn't. The Deus Ex Machina of Stumbling across the tapes on the platform bench, uh, he then <laughs> follows his nose and discovers Harry is trapped in a closet. Uh, not the same closet that Tom Cruise, in, just an actual. <laughs> they laugh and it's all resolved. Oh, I thought I was locked in the toilet, Paul. Um, Kit, have you ever seen a gross-out dude bro comedy called The Hangover? <laughs> I haven't seen the whole thing, but I know of it. Yeah, it's the same yeah. ending. It's just oh, here's someone we didn't look before. Yeah. <laughs> And I just, I remember the first time I saw this and then, you know, seeing it again now, you just, you just, the end, you're just like, that's it. I I just spent the last hour and a half or whatever it is of this and that's it. You know, all this with the tapes and that's, that's the solution. <laughs> well, ironically as well, the guy who directed Hangover actually went on to direct Joker. So I get, I get to mention that movie again. Um <laughs> I can't help but feel like this should have been a reveal at the end of the first act again. I'm, folks, I love structure. You know, 10 minutes in, you meet the main character. 15 minutes in, he saves the cat to win you over. At 30-minute mark, you have your inciting incident. These things work. These things are how movies are made. And Paul is not a screenwriter. No. And that, that 
Rathbone didn't have a henchman who locked Harry in the closet, and then Paul and Harry have to you know, get the tapes for the rest of the movie, is it's pathetic how how little is going on here. Yeah. Uh, and then, oh, maybe like you know, Rathbone's going to send some guys to rough Paul and Harry up, and they're going to fight their way out in a little closing fight. No, no, they 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 just ring, they just ring them. <laughs> I mean, got the tapes. You know. <laughs> Fuck off, kids. I know you don't swear, but I'll say it for you. Fuck right <laughs> off. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is the most anticlimactic, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, you're, really, I mean, you're just like, I spent, as I said, an hour and a half, half whatever it is for this. <laughs> wow. I just compose myself a little bit, because I'm actually getting quite sweaty with how angry I'm getting right now. Oh, no. <laughs> I worked up over, over this. This is, because, Kit. Despite the fact that I run a music podcast, I am a film guy first, and mm. my respect for film means I'd never do a podcast about it because I just don't know enough. But I can black my way to a, a music podcast. Mm. Obviously, the whole premise of this show is that I'm not publicist, so I do get to experience this for the first time as it is. And you know, mm-hmm. um, the best bit of how this whole sequence is Linda gets a line of dialogue, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Finally, I'll tell them that's it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I love her voice, I love her accent. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, then again, I love Yoko's accent, I love Olivia Harrison's accent. Don't like Barbara Bax, but whatever. Yeah, uh, and then after all of this is resolved. Kit, we get the worst. Have you ever read Alice in Wonderland? Yes. It was all a dream all yeah. along. I know. Tim Burton, eat your heart out. Where's Where's Johnny Depp do the Frab just day dance when you need him? You know I mean? <laughs> yep. Oh yes. The it's all it was all a dream uh, cliche. I mean, yep. At least it wasn't Tom Waits, Alice. That's a much darker prospect. Yes. <laughs> but this is a bit of a jabber cocky, you know what I mean? This is not a very good <laughs> ending at all. It's a waste of time. It's a stab in the audience's eye. Uh, I'm angry. I'm angry, Kit. I am. I'm thinking yep. about it now. Uh, and then Paul enters Abbey Road and you're begging for a rooftop concert. You're begging for something like that. Yep. And then it just credits come up. And like you said, is that it? <laughs> yep. Oh, oh, okay. At the one hour 44 minute mark, we get no more Lonely Nights play out version. Only nine minutes since we last heard the bastard song. So, <laughs> Why wasn't No More Lonely Nights at the start of the movie? Like, Paul, you know what a reprise is, right? You know how good a decent reprise can be. Yep. And you ballsed it up. You massively ballsed it up. And it leaves me on... It's like a lemon and a lime in terms of its sourness in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of vitamin C, but, you know, it's just not worth it in the end. Uh, yep, I know, I know. Yeah, it, it's bad, just. Bad. 
yep. Again, you're just like, well, that's uh, that's an hour and a half or whatever. I'll I, I won't get back. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not going to get back. Um, I mean, the only decent thing in the credits is that you see Steve Shrimpton and Lee Eastman getting a little thank you. Yes, yes, indeed, absolutely, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, you know, again, it's an example, and you would think that Paul would have learned it from Magical Mystery Tour, but but no, um, that, you know, you, 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 not just anybody can write a screenplay, and I mean, you know, he should have, and I think he did, I read somewhere that he did approach another screenwriter, and I think this, and it sounded like the screenwriter tried to say, "Gosh, Paul, these are interesting ideas," but um, you know, twenty-two pages, Kit. And for anyone not in the know, a page generally equals one minute of screen time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even with all the song sequences, it adds up to about sixty. Mm-hmm. That explains the thirty-five minutes of filler we get, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And so, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you may have a great idea for a storyline and all, but I mean, you need to work with somebody who really understands, you know, cinematography, who understands, as you said, you know, how to develop a plot line. I mean, you know, not just anybody can sit down and write uh, write that. And, and I mean, as I said, I'm one of them. I'm not going to do it. And, uh, and so I, I think that, you know, maybe Paul learned his lesson after this, and uh, and really, it's um, yeah. Uh, but you know, there were some good songs that that came out of the soundtrack, and so there it was. And the soundtrack did well. Um, you know, it did well on the charts. But uh, but of course, after this came out, the uh, oh, wow, the reviews were savage. I mean, absolutely savage, and uh, the box office was you know, uh, was really, really poor. You have to have a, a, a two of burn cream when you read the reviews. Oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> like, Kit, I love a nice, like, horrendously over-the-top, unnecessarily harsh, like, quip where, you know, it'll be something like, oh, I'm glad Paul wasted the bank's money and not his. Stuff, stuff like that. But... Folks, I mean, I, I would have gone through this in the opening 30, 30 minutes when I do my little context, but my God, they savaged him. Like, it's like Jodie Foster in The Unforgiven. It's awful. It, it really is. But he still, uh, he did a whole press tour and... Uh, and <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did. He did. And, uh, and quick story, um, I, I mentioned uh, this too before, uh, before we went on air, but... Um, by a, a back in, I guess this would have been 84, uh, a former babysitter of mine, um, her father was a, a photographer for the Chicago Tribune, and he was coming, Paul was coming through town to uh, to promote this, and Gene Siskel of uh, Siskel and Ebert, you know, they were the, uh, he and Roger Ebert were the... Thin, bold one, yeah? Yes, he was the thin, bald one, yep. Yeah, they were the film critics in America. I mean, they were the top of the time, you know. And so Paul was coming through town to promote this, and Gene Siskel was going to interview him. Now, I don't know at this point if Siskel had seen the movie. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, but he, you know, this was just going to be a, a 
promotional interview. And so Susie convinced her father to let her come along. She was a huge fan. She was in high school probably at this point. So she was a huge Beatle fan. In fact, one of her brothers was in a touring uh, company of Beatlemania from the remember that show from the 70s the stage show there was a it was like a musical but anyway so she came and that it was at a hotel in downtown chicago he was doing tons of interviews you know and so uh so she comes and all, and so uh you know she meets paul of course she's probably like the rest of us saying uh hi paul and <laughs> You know, probably like any of us would be, tongue-tied. And, and um, what's his name? Uh, the chap who sadly passed away. What's his name? Oh, Chris Farley. Yeah, like Chris yep. Farley. Yeah. Yep, probably was like Chris Farley. So then, you know, she sits off in a corner and all. So Gene Siskel starts interviewing Paul and starts asking him really obvious questions. I mean, questions <laughs> that he had been asked like a thousand times. And Where do your ideas come from, Paul? Where do your ideas yeah, come from? Oh like, like really obvious stuff. What's that say about? Yeah. <laughs> and, well, it's about my mom, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah, same old stuff. And Susie's in the corner, you know, and she starts smirking, you know, and Paul sees her out of the corner of his eye and he starts smirking because he knows exactly what she's laughing about and Siskel sees all this and says get her out of here <laughs> and so her father Tony begged said, could I just get one picture of my daughter with Paul you know before she goes you know so they said okay okay so I, I have it and I, I couldn't uh, I I I'll have to find it, but I have a copy of the picture. They gave it to me years later, and it's a picture of the two of them sitting on a, on a couch, where he's, and uh, and of course she's looking like you know beyond thrilled, and uh, and so then you know she had to leave, but it was really funny because I guess Cisco was just asking him the same old tired questions, and and Susie knew, you know, and and so it was just funny that Paul saw her. <laughs> smirking and he started smirking right back you know like yeah I know these are the same old tired questions <laughs> you didn't open a parlor after did you and so I, I don't know she didn't <laughs> I wish <laughs> or was so she called Susie Parker who knows you know yeah who who knows? Oh, that's funny. But anyway, so yeah, so he was doing all that that kind of stuff, and you know, God, God love him. He, he still uh, did all that, and uh, then yeah, then uh, uh, so yeah, he, he hasn't done a movie since, of course. Which is a shame. Like if he if he just went, you know, hey Marty Scorsese, you know, can you just do this thing for me? Like that'd be great. He just would, but. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lack of control he would have to give and giving final cut to someone else. You know, it's like giving Michael Lindsay Hogg the final cut for Let It Be and showing the Beatles to be. Yep, I don't know if he could do. I, I mean, I, well, I, I mean, you know, the Let It Be project, that'll be interesting to see next year, of course, when that comes out. It um, comes out, Kate. If, yeah, right. We'll see. Oh, I guess we'll believe it when we see it. Uh, I mean, like, I, 
It was meant to come out the day after my birthday, Kit. Oh, oh, that real that now that really hurts. I think that's the worst thing that's happened because of Corona. Me having my birthday ruined. It's not the, it's not the thousands and thousands of dead. No. That, no. That's not that's not staying in the cut, by the way. That's a joke just for you, by the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> If you if if you are looking for you know unproblematic Beatles podcasts, uh, I am I am sure nothing is real. We'll gladly have you on next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, funny. American podcasts, Irish podcasts, give us my land back, you podcast stealing mother. <laughs> My father oh. stole that land, and I want it back. That's right. <laughs> oh, oh that's funny. Before I unleash into another classic Paul or Nothing style rant that will make Larry David blush. Uh-oh. Uh, what are your closing thoughts, general review, and professional recommendation for Paul McCartney's super flop called Give My Regards to Port Street? Take <sighs> All right. Well, you know, if if you're obviously a hardcore fan, um, you, you you have to see it. Um, it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't say the casual fan <laughs> would, uh, <laughs> would may not enjoy it as much. I didn't mean to laugh that I really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. No, no. I mean, that's the thing. I I don't know if I would would say the casual fan absolutely has to see it. Uh, but but the hardcore fan, I mean, you you know you you do have to see it, and and whenever it it comes out um, on DVD, Blu-ray, whatever, um, I you know you you have to have it as part of your collection. It's it's you know I mean it's it's definitely not an, a great artistic statement, um, and uh, it's one that you you'll probably enjoy the soundtrack more than the film um it's uh you know it's also kind of a snapshot of a certain period in paul's career uh where he was sort of trying to find his footing uh in uh, the contemporary landscape as as we talked about earlier um he would eventually find it more in the late 80s um but it's still it's it's definitely um you know it, it it was not um it deserves its its reputation for being a critical disappointment. Uh, hasn't aged well, but it's still worth a look if you are a hardcore Paul fan, particularly, um, just to see what this period in in his career was like. Um, and definitely, uh, you want the soundtrack for your collection for completest reasons. And for certain tracks like "Not Such a Bad Boy" and uh, and particularly "No More Lonely Nights." Are there any minor fixes you could add to this film to improve it, or does it need to be completely reworked from the ground? Oh, it needs to be completely reworked. <laughs> oh no, it's not minor fixes. <laughs> it, it needs to be completely reworked. Absolutely. You hear these things like it was a TV special about Tug of War, and that would have been way better, but no. 
Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think if there would be any way you could just do some minor reworking. I mean, I'm, you know, it, it maybe it would have been okay. I've said this about Magical Mystery Tour. Like, Magical Mystery Tour would have been great, in, in my humble opinion, if it had just been, if you had just taken out all the musical sequences. You know, forget the other stuff, take out the musical sequences and have it be like a video album. I think that would have been, it would have worked on that level. With Give My Grudge to Broad Street, I don't know if it would have, I mean, maybe the the um, Eleanor's dream sequence, um, you know, is that, that was probably the most, more one of the more interesting parts of the film, but I'm trying to think if it, it could even work on just like a musical, you know, like a video album level, but Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> had existed in 1984, and you could have put ad revenue on all the music videos. It probably would have at least broke even. Yeah, revenue on big YouTube videos. Like, I'm going to assume that Paul would have some pull still in '84 if YouTube had existed in the format back then. Yeah. Yeah, because Paul still, yeah, in 84, he certainly would have, you know, he was still uh, charting hits then. So, I mean, he probably would have still had some pull then uh, to, to do that, do a, you know, or do a, <laughs> have to, hate to bring up, you know, bring this, it's weird to bring this artist up on this broadcast, but like a Beyonce <laughs> and do like a video album like that. Uh, like, she, I, I am... I'll tell you what, I love Beyonce Kit. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. She has the balls to fuck off after each album and just leave you wanting more. She does yep. not bombard you in the way that, like, an Ariana Grande does, where every day there's a new story. Beyonce releases an album. It's amazing. All the singles yep. are good. And then she goes away and makes you miss her. Yes. Absolutely love it. Yep. I wish Lady Lady Gaga would do something similar as well. Yep, that's true. That's true. And yeah, that's that's the thing. And and her video albums are, are you know really well done. And and uh, you know it, it'd be very uh, very innovative and and all that. So I mean you know maybe on something like that level it could have worked. I don't know. But uh, or the equivalent back in eighty four. But uh, but yeah, I think I mean otherwise, yeah, the the movie would, would need some major reworking. Who runs the world? Girls. <laughs> hey I'm back. I'm coming in hard, Kit. Yeah. Right. Sit back, I'm going to eviscerate this movie and tear it a new asshole. Um, this, is, this is genuinely one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. I, like, I, I like bad movies. I love movies like 1992's Spiders. Uh, I love drunken samurai and kick kung fu movies. And I love straight-to-video alien movies. I like bad movies. This is not a film. People say, oh, this is Paul McCartney's home movies. I wish it was Paul McCartney's home movies because in Paul McCartney's home movies, we get uh, a version of uh, Bit Bop and, you know, I Am Your Singer mixed together and stuff like that. You know, we get great stuff. Here, I would kill for Heart of the Country and just footage of Linda and Paul on a horse. Yep. 
no, we get a movie where Paul suffers from a, a term I've coined called Batman Syndrome, where the main character is the most uninteresting character in his own story, and it's like, oh my god, Paul, you are not... propagates so many terrible stereotypes of Paul being this upper-class rich twit. Listen to this day, uh, the story. Uh, Paul is 100% passive in his own movie, doesn't do anything. Uh, the whole script is a first act with a resolution tacked on the end. There is no second act, there is no build-up. There are no stakes that you care about, and... As cliche as it sounds, I kind of would have liked um, a Three Stooges or Laurel and Hardy type plot where he's got to save an orphanage or something, you know? Something I can relate to. Um, supporting cast bar Ringo are all underutilised and terribly boring and one note. Again, shout out to Tracy Ullman. you got a rough deal there, love. Um, few to none of the jokes land on their two feet. Out. And the ending resolution is, honestly, it's as funny as it is unsatisfying. And the film is almost embarrassed by its own crap ending, and it, like, (laughs) really speedily gets it over with, you know? Yeah. Out of ten... Give this a rating out of ten or a Rotten Tomatoes score percentage out of a hundred. Go on. Oh, man. (laughs) I guess, uh, well, for out of ten... Oh, I'd give this a two. <laughs> and would you give it 22% or is it a firm 20? Oh, my God. Um, I, yeah, I'd probably, I don't know if I'd have the heart to give it a 20. I'd probably give it a 22. All right, all right yeah. You know, just, just under four stars, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to quote Roger Ebert talking about the Elijah Wood film, North, I hated it. Hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. (laughs) And massive shout out to Siskel and Ebert on this podcast. I love the fact that they are in Godzilla, the 1997 Godzilla film. (laughs) The best criticism they had towards that movie was, if you're going to put us in a Godzilla movie, have him stomp on us. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, as I said, love Paul and, and you know, love much of his work. And I, I mean, obviously I'm a fan, but uh, but yeah, this this was just not, you know, not up to his standards, to say the least. Right, Kit, I'm not going to make you do a Ken Michaels length episode. I'm going to let you go in the next 10 minutes. We have one <laughs> last little tradition here. It's called. All Cat right. Order. Where we select three songs that will be added to the official Paul McCartney Paul or Nothing canon. Now, I would normally request we choose original tracks here, but there are only three original tracks, and some of the remakes are actually pretty damn good. So, between the two of us, we're going to choose three songs. Let's choose one each, uh, and then one that we will try and hash out between us. What song do you want to unequivocally add to the Paul McCartney canon? Okay, now this this is because uh, I didn't hear part of that. So this is uh, so these are songs just from any of his solo albums, or I'll, I'll retake all that. So before we go, we have another little tradition here on the show called Canon Fodder, 
where we, we're going to select three songs from the soundtrack and we're going to add it to the Paul or Nothing canon playlist that covers the entire breadth of Paul McCartney's career. Normally, I would choose original tracks, but obviously the give my regards to Broad Street soundtrack only has three original tracks and some of the remakes are pretty good. So between us, we're going to choose three songs from the Give My Regards to Broad Street soundtrack. We're going to choose one each that the other can't veto, and then we'll decide the third between ourselves. I'm going to start off with Not Such a Bad Boy. That has to be added to the canon, even if it is a complete throwaway. Kit, choose one song from this soundtrack. Okay, well, you're not going to like this, but no more Lonely Nights. (laughs) I I, I thought thought we'd come in. It's fine. Don't worry. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm good at forgiveness. I really am. <laughs> now, this is a difficult bit. But not such a bad boy and no more lonely nights. But what are we going to choose for the third song? I mean, the three I'd like to throw into the mix would be Eleanor Rigby, Eleanor's Dream, Ballroom Dancing, or So Bad. But I know that you're not a big fan of So Bad compared to the album version. Yeah. Hmm. Let's let's bargain. Come on. Come on, let's talk. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I would vote for ballroom dancing because I, I like the extra verse. Um, and as I said, the the um, you know, I think the instru- uh, instrumental break on this version really kicks butt. Um, and uh, so that would that would be my vote. You know what? <sighs> but Emma's- so good. Yeah, Eleanor's dream. That's true. A queen somewhere. <laughs> oh, I love. Oh, I love a ten pence piece right now, or ten cents to my American listeners. Um, <laughs> oh. No, come on. Okay, the fact that ballroom dancing was the first song that I ever saw on YouTube for Paul McCartney, and I saw this video possibly just a twinkle in my eye. Um, <laughs> Let's go with ballroom dancing. So the final Yay! is Cannon Fodder. We're going to go with Not Such a Bad Boy. We're going to go with ballroom dancing. Not the play-out version, I hope. Of- no, 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 no. The, the regular. The regular version. Single version. Yeah, we'll go with No More Lonely Nights. Go on. <laughs> and Kip, to wrap things up, let me just say, all networking and bullshit aside, Thank you for coming on this show. Well, clearly, it's been worth the wait. I've kept my mom up with the laughter. And I will definitely be asking you back on this show as soon as possible. Maybe even for the James Paul McCartney TV special. Who knows? Oh. Do you have anything coming up that you want to plug or talk about to my eight listeners? Your eight listeners. Well, first of all, I Sam, I had a blast. I'm glad we finally got this together. I mean, this this was just such such a, a you know great time. I had such fun discussing this with you. And and no, this you know I know you thought I uh, I was going to be mad that you gave me Broad Street, but I wasn't. This was such fun to revisit it it took me back to my youth so this this was really (laughs) this was a fun fun assignment so um coming up um actually on uh talk more talk my uh 
next show with uh, many of my co-hosts that you've had on this show. Um, and I'm just checking my calendar here. It is July 13th. Uh, we'll be back with another episode where we are going to do a brand new uh, show we haven't tried this before. We're we're going to we're calling it uh, wreck our brain. Hey, yeah. <laughs> can thing on a Beatles podcast without it being the title of one of their songs? It of is just course. impossible. Isn't it? Yeah, of course, we have to do it, where we are going to ask each other sort of lightning round questions, where uh, we're going to ask each other sort of instant opinions of, you know, uh, if you had to choose, like, a song to uh, knock off of, you know, Red Rose Speedway, what would it be? You know, things like that. And uh, and we're going to ask the audience to uh, ask us questions as well. So this should be a lot of fun. So that's going to be uh, July 13th, 19th p.m. Eastern, so just go to Facebook and uh, uh, go to our Facebook page, Talk More Talk Solo Beatles video cast, and uh, join the fun, and of course, if you can't join us live, you can watch us on YouTube um, and listen to our audio uh, version as well, uh, and uh, I'm also going to uh, be on back on the Plastic EP show, in fact, I think the latest episode I was on is just going up, um, and of course, you can check my Facebook page uh, either at Kiddo Tools Keynotes or uh, or my other page, just Kiddo Tool, and I'm always posting any other appearances, such as on this show, and uh, plenty of others, and my latest writings, and that kind of thing. Uh, you can follow me on those pages and uh, find out what uh, what I'm up to, and where uh, what shows I'm on, where my writings are, and all that fun stuff. So, uh, just follow me there, or on my website, Kiddo tool.com to quote the avengers endgame i bow before your majestic personage kid <laughs> thank you sam really appreciate it i had a great time as you know everyone my fans my eight fans make sure you do listen to talk more talk you all put on a fantastic show there and thank you, you. All, you also gave me a shout out during a very difficult point in my life which i that massively oh you guys really are the avengers of the beatles podcasting world um and i was listening to another kind of they were talking about genius clusters that's what talk more talk is to me it's a genius cluster of all of my favorite podcasters and tom hunyadi <laughs> thank you very much i love it the avengers i think i think that might be our new our new nickname i like that Tom, just so you know, I, I only take the piss out of you because you had the balls to do a Paul McCartney podcast the same year I did. Uh, <laughs> always got a chance to swap to Ringo. You've always got a chance to swap. <laughs> Ringo Andy, or nothing. Andy, convince him, you know. Maybe. <laughs> Everyone, that was the Queen. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl. She has a lot to say. Uh, that was our review of Give My Regards to Broad Street. Uh, I've been your host, Sam Wiles. That was my guest, the powerful Dr. Kit O'Toole. Thank you for tuning in. Not sure if this is coming out before Flowers in the Dirt or after. Either way, stick around. We'll see you very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Much love.